All right, all right. Welcome to episode eight of the Critical Social Worker. Actually, I think we're on episode nine, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. And my name is Christian A. Stetler, and I am a professor, a professor in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, I am broadcasting live from Ock Bay in Juneau, Alaska. You all know I give you a, a weather update uh, every week. I, last week, I said it's kind of the weather's kind of uh, bipolar that it can't make up its mind. One day it's winter, one day it's spring. Well, it's kind of trending towards spring, although we'd like to see a little bit more sunshine, a lot of rain. But it looks like temperatures are going to go up into the 50s next week. So we're excited about that. And I've uh, had word that, you know, the bears are indeed waking up. Um, so looking forward to interacting with some of them or seeing them around. But anyways, I am fortunate to be blessed with Doreen as my co-host today. So how's it, Doreen? Good. Good. Can you guys hear me okay? I can hear you. Good morning. It's been a great morning for me so far. A lot of nerves, but I'm more excited than anything. Um, and thanks for inviting me today, Christian. Um, I'm, I'm an avid podcast listener, and so I'm really excited to be on the other side today as a first-time co-host. Um, so it's a little nerve-wracking, um, but I join Christian's podcast weekly and really look forward to the inspirational stories each guest shares. Um, so with that being said, I just want to extend a warm welcome to our guests, and I look forward to sharing this space with you all today. Yeah, and like I said, I feel very fortunate to have Doreen uh, here with us today. Um, but we got a great episode planned this morning. Uh, like Doreen said, we have three very special guests, Natalia, Cachet, and Marley, all of whom I attended grad school with at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. We're going to get to them a little bit later in just a minute. Um, like I said, it's going to be a great episode, so stick around. Can't wait to get down to it. But before we do all that, there's just a few things we ought to cover. Okay. The Critical Social Worker is supported by the Social Work Department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. However, we want to be clear that any opinions expressed on this podcast, be it by the host, guests, or listeners calling in, do not necessarily reflect the values of the Social Work Department, College of Liberal Arts, the University of Alaska Fairbanks, or any of its affiliates. The opinions and ideas shared belong to the speakers alone. All right. And that's important, um, especially for this episode. We have some opinionated folks on here. And uh, if you don't like something that one of us says, you should take it up with the individual or you could even address it during the podcast, which I recommend. There's a chat box uh, as well as there'll be an opportunity to call in lately. I mean, at the, towards the end of the podcast, um, our opinions are all our own and do not represent any outside organization organization or the University of Alaska Fairbanks. With that being said, Doreen, you mind sharing our mission statement? Of course. Um, the Critical Social Worker podcast unfolds unique stories and diverse perspectives to foster critical dialogue, empathy, and understanding for all listeners. Through storytelling grounded in social work values, we aim to change ourselves and the world one story at a time. And one of those underlying themes of that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. We here at the Critical Social Worker believe that each individual is multi-layered, with unique life experiences, and we want to help unfold some of these layers through stories that we can learn and grow from, stories that could help build critical consciousness. Can you guys hear me okay? I don't know if it's on my end, Christian, but you're breaking up quite oh, a yeah, bit. We can hear you. Okay. 
Um, but I'd just like to recognize the UAF Social Work Department for bringing us all together today. And as a BSW student myself, I'm so thankful to be a part of this little community for a number of reasons. Um, the, the biggest re reason being that UAF makes it easy for anyone anywhere in the world to seek their degree online at an affordable, low in-state tuition cost. And I also want to give a special shout out to my BSW cohort program today here at UAF. Um, the cohort program has made it easy for people like me, a first gen indigenous college student working full time, living in rural and remote Alaska to seek my degree, which I can use to serve my community and people, which means a lot to me. Um, and that's a little piece of my story. And so with that being said, I'll turn it back to you, Christian. All right. What about you? Are you a social worker with a story to tell? Are you interested in coming on the, on the show as a guest to tell your story, to share your stories? If you are, if you are interested, just hit me up with an email at castetler at alaska.edu. That's C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at alaska.edu. Do you enjoy The Critical Social Worker? If you do, please support us by leaving a review on Spotify and or Apple Podcasts. You can also make sure to follow the podcast on Colin. Right on. Thanks, Doreen. And one thing I didn't mention when we were talking about uh, UAF Department of Social Work earlier, the best way to find them is look for them on Facebook, type in uh, UAF Social Work, or just do a Google search and take you right to the program. Um, and with that being said, I think we ought to get this party, this conscious party started for real. Hey, yo, everyone, gather around. It's story time. Brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks, Department of Social Work, and a Conscious Party Productions. You are listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. A conscious party. Revolutionizing our minds. Elevating our consciousness. Changing our worlds. Your story. My story. Our story. <laughs> All right. Well, back in 2015, I had just graduated uh, with my BSW from University of Alaska Fairbanks, and uh, I had been accepted to the University of Hawaii at Manoa in Honolulu, Hawaii. And upon my arrival in Honolulu, you know, I was real charged up and ready to go for grad school. Uh, uh, historically, I'd pretty much been a failure at school, but I'd found some of myself and some confidence um, in recent times, uh, you know, through my undergraduate education. And I had just read my first couple of scholarly books, you know, that weren't required outside of class. And I remember one of those books that I had read was uh, Dr. Gabor Mate's In the Realm of Hungry, Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. And I had big dreams of opening up my own treatment facility after graduation. You know, a treatment center that was, that was different, you know, like a trauma-informed approach with compassionate inquiry. And I was real high on the idea from doc, like Dr. Gabor Mate, where he asks, where he says that, we're often asking, you know, when it comes to substance abuse, why the drugs? You know, why do, people, why do people do this to themselves? Why do they use these drugs that cause them so many problems? But Dr. Mate argues that the real question we ought to be asking is why the pain? And like I said, I came to grad school charged up and ready to learn new and innovative ideas, such as the ones that Dr. Gabor and Mate were presenting, you know, trauma-informed, compassionate inquiry. Uh, and I wanted to you know, to learn how to open up the baddest ass treatment center ever. Like really, th these were my goals going into grad school. Um, however, I'm not, and I, I don't want to completely knock 
all of my MSW education by any means. I had many great points and I met many great people. And there were several professors that uh, taught me uh, profound things. But I felt that my MSW education at, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa was mostly designed to teach me how to choose one of two boxes to either be a case manager or a therapist. Um, and that's just my personal experience. Um, but for those that know me well, you know that there's damn well no way that I could survive full time in either of those roles. I got like major ADD problems. Uh, I, would, I would be tuned out of my clients 20 minutes in, or, you know, I'd be pondering something that they said 30 minutes ago and miss the entire rest of everything that they said, the entire conversation. It's just not for me. Um, and anyway, I remember on the final day of class for our cohort, it was the behavioral and mental health cohort. And we had to stand up at the end of class and we had to talk about uh, what we had learned at our time uh, as an MSW. And most of the students, if not all of them, had you know, very profound anecdotes and stories to share about the things that they'd learned about themselves, about social work, their practicum experience, things like that. And uh, the whole time I was listening to them, you know, I was actually moved by a few people because I learned things about them, like people that I was unsure about and I learned about them. And uh, so it was good in that way. But the whole time I was sitting there, I couldn't help but have this like feeling like I just got to be honest here. And, and, you know, like so much of my life, I pretended to be somebody else and was afraid to say what I thought. So I was like, I just got to be honest here. That's that's my role right now. And when it came to me, I just let it out. And I said, you know, the one thing that I learned in my MSW education was that I don't want to be a social worker anymore. And people were uh, upset with me about this. You know, I had students reflect to me. I had the professor of the class reflect to me. I had my advisor who was there uh, reflect to me about it. And um, I understand everybody's points and, you know, I should try to be positive in, in, in certain things and whatnot. But, you know, maybe it was I had just taken a, a class with uh, uh, Miss Angela Davis. And, you know, she says, uh, you know, instead of the original serenity prayer, she says, you know, um, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. And uh, so maybe I was a little bit charged up by, um, you know, some of that power. But uh, it was the truth, you know. That's what I felt when I went there. I felt like I went into a couple classes, you know, really ready to learn new things and talk about new things. And I felt like I was shut down when I brought those things up and that we were, they wanted to teach us how to fill out an intake form and how to, you know, do um, – you know, uh, substance abuse assessments by scaling and whatnot. I'm not saying that you shouldn't learn those things, but a lot of those things you could learn on the job, I felt like, you know, we should be learning uh, new things and learning from each other and whatnot. And we didn't really always have the opportunity to do that. It was the traditional banking model of education, you know. Like my substance abuse professor, he was really cool. I liked him a lot. But most of the time he just sat up there and told us what we needed to learn. And then we did an assessment test at the end of class. Um, anyway, so I left social work. Um, I did moonlight as a substance abuse counselor for just a little bit, but really I got drawn into the to higher education and worked at Utah State University for a while. Went back and uh, to move back to Honolulu and taught as an adjunct uh, at Hawaii Pacific University and and UH Manoa. Um, but social work kind of reclaimed me a couple different times. You know, when I was working at Hawaii Pacific University HPU, I didn't intend to teach social work, but uh, an opportunity came and they. You know, they paid me um, table scraps to teach college students. But I really, really loved it, and I enjoyed it. And I, um, one of the things that worked for me is that 
I really had no supervision and they had, I thought that they were going to tell me exactly what I needed to do for the classes, but they didn't tell me anything. And so I just did the classes how, my way, how I wanted, which is very different than the traditional methods. Uh, and um, I really loved the interactions with the students. I loved the feedback that I got. And so I kept doing it. Um, and it eventually led me back here. The, and actually, you know, the pandemic played a role. I was, uh, you know, doing some things at UH Manoa and planned, planned to keep going with that. But the pandemic shut it down. You know, I was studying talking circles and it's hard to hold a talking circle when the university shut down and all your classes moved to, you know, moved to distance. Anyway, long story short, pandemic happened and we looked for other opportunities and uh, University of Alaska called and I came full circle and, and social work reclaimed me. And now I feel like my duty, you know, through like this podcast and through working with students, part of that is, is to be critical um, about things. And uh, I felt like that was my first step in that, you know, when I was critical of the program that I went through and I was critical of my experience and I was even critical of the way that I had, that I, you know, dealt with, with some of those things. Um, but the important thing was like, I had to step away and stepping away did, while I thought it may be the end at that time, it really taught me that it wasn't and social work reclaimed me. And so I, you know, I always say that if you, if you want a traditional introduction, then, you know, the critical social work worker podcast is not the place. So we do kind of introductions a little bit different. And so I just want to go through each one of you um, individually, and I'm going to introduce you one by one, but I want you to tell us a story that can kind of help us get to know you, but also about maybe a time when you've been involved in social work, either as a student, professional, whatever, where, you know, something just wasn't clicking for you, or maybe everything wasn't clicking for you and you had to step away or you had to do something different to take care of yourself before you could come back. Um, and uh, if it's okay, I'd like to start with you, Natalia. And the story I want to share about Natalia um, is it's kind of more of a general story, you know. I met Natalia, like I said, in grad school at UH Manoa, and we were kind of like fringe friends. We knew kind of some of the same people and whatnot um, and saw each other at some of the, you know, our MSW barbecues and things like that. And, uh, you know, we really became close just as we were leaving, as me and uh, my wife were leaving Honolulu for the first time, and we moved back to Utah for a while. But, uh, you know, we started hanging out with Natalia and her partner, Tui, um, and we became very close. And when we left, I think that, you know, sometimes it's weird how things happen and you become even closer. I know Natalia and Tui, you know, they liked what we had started with a family and they were had talk, been talking about it for themselves. And I think we really connected on that, you know, spirit, almost spiritually, if that makes sense. And when we came back, we had kids and they had a kid, um, which I hope you mention, your beautiful son. Um, but it was a really cool how that relationship developed, you know, and when we moved back to Honolulu, it was like they were there waiting for us and they supported us in everything that we did. And I feel like we've just, even though we left Honolulu again, I feel like our families are kind of intertwined, um, you know, in a spiritual kind of way, if that makes sense. And so I just want to thank you for coming on, Natalia. This was supposed to be Natalia's own episode to start with, and I made some scheduling blunders. Um, so now we have everyone, which is still going to be a great conversation. But I wanted to, you know, honor you, Natalia, and give you the first opportunity to, to introduce yourself and, and tell us a little story. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Christian, for the introduction. Um, thank you so much for having this podcast and, and bringing us all on. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, 
even based on the story you shared, I feel like there's so much to say on that. But um, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to me. A little bit about myself and how I got into the field is um, I think I wanted to, I knew I wanted to go into psychology when I was in high school. Um, and I went straight from high school to get my bachelor's and I studied psychology and criminal justice. I knew I wanted to work in that field. Um, I ended up working uh, after I graduated. I didn't know what I wanted to do and I had no experience. Um, so I ended up volunteering at a drop-in center for youth that were experiencing homelessness, volunteering um, in the San Francisco County jails. I was living in San Francisco, mostly with the women, but sometimes I would also work with the men um, and I was working restaurant jobs. And then I eventually got hired at the nonprofit where I was volunteering, um, serving the youth. It was a shelter for young adults, 18 to 24, where I got my first position. Um, and then after some time there, I wanted to continue my education, get my master's. And I wasn't sure exactly what program I wanted to go into. I don't think I necessarily knew what social work was. Um, but I looked into different programs. I think I applied to some like counseling, things like that. Um, and I looked at the curriculum or the classes that were offered for the social work program. And I knew that those were the classes that I was drawn to that I wanted to learn from. Um, and so I got accepted to the program of UH Manoa and I moved to Hawaii in 2014 and uh, graduated with my master's in 2016. I, um, trying to keep the story short, but I ended up working in a dual diagnosis treatment, working with people who have co-occurring disorders, mental health conditions, and substance use disorders, um, and eventually moved away from abstinence-only based programming, and now I work in harm reduction. I got my clinical license, so I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I also have my certification in substance abuse counseling. Um, because I work in harm reduction, I prefer to call myself a substance use counselor. I try to stay away from certain language um, like addiction. And yeah, and so here I am. Did you want me to jump into my story regarding my recent experiences? Yeah. Now so or did you? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> so, um, let's see. Another thing that drew me to social work that I didn't share in regards to the beginning of my experience was I, I really like, uh, when I was still a senior working on my, my last year of my bachelor program, I interned for AmeriCorps and I, it's a, it's like a volunteer internship program and I was under justice Corps, so I was interning with the courts in San Francisco, specifically the family courts. Um, and so I, that was really, I think, what, I mean, there's like so many steps that, that brought me into social work, right? I, I'm at the point where I don't know what else I would do if I wasn't doing social work. My, my partner, Tui, has asked me before what I would do if I wasn't doing this, and there's literally nothing that I can think of. This is where the road has led me. And one of the things that I really liked about um, working with the family courts is that we were providing services at no fee. Um, and so that was something that I really liked, right? Like you're getting a service, you're getting help and there's no cost to it. 
And so another thing that I learned to do there, I remember when they trained us is that they would tell us that we are working with people on the worst day of their life. We are working with people when they're coming into file for custody disputes, divorce, restraining orders. And so that really introduced me to patience and staying calm with working with people in distress. Um, and I enjoyed it. It was, I think it was a skill that I, I built pretty well. And so fast forward to now, I am working as a therapist um, in a harm reduction center, harm reduction setting. Um, and I won't say too much about harm reduction because I can say a lot about that. Um, but what that means is that I am working with, a lot of time when we're working in harm reduction, we're working with a lot of people that other people don't wanna work with. They may have burned bridges with other programs. They may not qualify for other programs because other programs have all these barriers and restrictions as to who they're willing to accept. So a lot of the people that I'm currently working with are living on the streets. They're using drinking alcohol daily. Um, they're meeting me under the influence. They're, they've experienced a lot, a lot, a lot of trauma. They have pretty severe mental health conditions. Um, and I also work a lot with the, with people who are living with HIV. We do a lot of work around the HIV community. And so what that means is I work, I mean, not, not everybody who's living with HIV falls under this category, but I do work with a lot of people who are part of the LGBT plus community as well. And I love it. Um, Anyone, I, I won't be saying where, sharing where I work today or where I've previously worked, but anyone who knows me knows where I work and I absolutely love the philosophy, the services, I love it. Um, and I think that I've kind of find myself that usually I love everywhere that I work. Um, I love the work that I do and I, I think that I'm pretty good at it. I wouldn't say that I'm the best, but um, I think I'm pretty good at what I do. And so I'm so grateful to have found harm reduction. And, and it, was some, it was almost like something I never knew I always wanted to do um, because I didn't have the, the knowledge of what it was. And then when I found it, I was like, whoa, I, I went through a harm reduction training and I described it as seeing a rainbow for the first time. It was just like, this is what I want. Um, so yeah, it was great. And then over the last year, I started experiencing burnout. Um, I think that it slowly crept in. I was recognizing it here and there. Um, and I've experienced burnout before. I had burnt out when I was working in the shelter. That was that was pretty difficult work. I was we had 40 beds and it was usually me and another person sort of running the place. And we would just say, you know, if the place, if the building hasn't burnt down and everyone's still alive, we did our job. And that's like because we were worried about the building burning down and we were worried about people not staying alive under our shift. So I, I did burn out from that. 
Um, that burnout was different than this burnout because that was like 10 years ago, right? That was, I was young. I was in my early twenties. I did it. I didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, I was in my early twenties, so, but that burnout, I mean, I remember I used to come to work and just sort of be in a bad mood and not be unmotivated to do things and right. Like I don't want to, I used to walk out of work every day and I would joke, I'm never coming back. Like, good night. I'm never coming back, but I would come back the next day. And, um, I got really, really lucky in that situation because I told my boss that I was burning out and I thought that we were going to have a conversation about me quitting and he placed me in a different program at a different site. Um, and so that, that really worked in my favor, but this burnout was different. Um, this is a couple years after the pandemic, after having a baby in a pandemic and really being more of a professional, right? Like a legit therapist, having these sessions, being exposed to so much trauma, sitting with trauma. Um, we had, I was working a couple of days a week at a stabilization facility that had opened up um, for people with severe mental health conditions. And I was doing a lot of assessments um, with most of the people that were coming in. I was doing psych evaluations, um, substance use assessments to figure out what would be appropriate levels of care and treatment. And um, that was really, really, really difficult because I was seeing so many people who needed so much help that didn't exist. And so I'm meeting someone, I'm getting exposed to their entire story. And then I just sort of have to sit there with the uh, knowledge that this person is, they're, they're screwed. Like there's, there's, I don't know what, what to do. I, I can do this and I can do that and I can do this, but we're not going to get anywhere. And so that was very, very difficult um, for me to hold. And even in sessions, I may get emotional. It, it was a lot. Um, it's a lot to sit with someone in their trauma, but it's, it's another like mind fuck, excuse me for cursing, to know that there's no one else for them to have these conversations with. There's no one else there for them to help them. Um, there's, that's for a lot of the people that I work with or providers work with, other social workers work with, we are the only form of stability, whatever that stability may look like, even though there's lots of um, turnaround in someone's life. And I started to feel this resentment as to like, why did I think it was a good idea to do this work? Why did I ever think like, I didn't understand why I decided to do this work. I was upset with the world that we live in, that we were in the situation where this person has experienced so much trauma. I mean, rape, sexual abuse, assault. I mean, for people living on the streets, like theft and all of these experiences daily, this is the norm. Um, for a lot of people in the LGBT plus community, just being shunned from their family, being kicked out, the amounts of physical violence, murders, 
And how did I, how did we end up here where I'm here, I'm left with this responsibility to hold space for you. I was upset about that. Like, why am I the person that's here sitting in front of you, helping you? Like, how did we end up here? And I, I had this resentment. It was so unlike me because I love this work and I was having nightmares. I was crying every day for months. For months, I was crying every day. I remember we had a two-week holiday break. For two weeks, we were off work, and I went three days without crying in a row. And I was like, I just went three days without crying. It was bad. And so I decided to tell my supervisor that I needed some time off. Um, and I, I didn't have any paid time off, so I was basically saying I need some time off unpaid. And, um, she was really supportive because I said, I want this amount of time off. And she told me to take off more and I took off as much as I could. I wish I could have taken off more, but I couldn't afford it. But even the day I got back to work, she told me. If you need more time off, tell me. Like, you don't have to come back to work today. And I was, I took off using FMLA. Um, I think you can take off like 12 weeks per year. That's unpaid. Um, and my, my supervisor told me to talk to HR about applying for TDI, temporary disability insurance. I met with a psychiatrist who signed off for me so that I could get some income while I was gone. And so I ended up taking a month off. And I wanted to do nothing. You know, people talked about it like it was a vacation. I, I don't know what the definition of a vacation is. But when I think of a vacation, I think of um, engaging in happy activities, um, having a good time. And I was not in a space to have a good time. I, what I needed, what I said I needed was a trauma detox. I needed to detox from trauma because all day I was exposed to trauma, 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 trauma. And I had to sit with it. You know, this, this work is really hard because everything is confidential. We don't have like a team of people to talk to about I mean, I have supervision where I can discuss cases, but my supervisors aren't working with these people. It's just, it's not the same. It's not like when you work, you know, I'll use a coffee shop example and something happens and the whole coffee shop can talk about what just happened. And the reason I use the coffee shop, because when I was burning out, I found myself um, at a coffee shop, at a cafe after a hike, and I was watching the girl take our order and make our coffee. And I was just thinking to myself how much I envied her job. Like that seems so chill. And and it's not to knock on, on baristas or to say that there's no uh, difficulties with that. Cause I used to work in the restaurants, but it's like, I just wanted to do something like that where it was just, no one's going to die. Right. Unless they have like a food allergy or something, but <sighs> so, um, 
it, it, it's just, it was really difficult because it, it's so lonely to do therapy. Um, and I would find myself also going to social settings where, I mean, the, the circle that I have right now is social workers. That's who I socialize with if I have the energy to socialize. Um, but I, re- I went to my, my fiance Chewie's holiday party and I remember someone asking me about what work, the work that I do. And I just want to like hide, right? I, I can't even talk about the work that I do with anyone who's not doing it because there's such a disconnect. Like it's, it's a lot. So I took this time off. I took this trauma detox um, to literally do nothing. Uh, I remember my supervisor talking to me about uh, when we fantasize about what type of work we would do if we weren't in the field. And she was talking about something that had gone viral about how you can um, work as a baby panda cuddler. I don't know if anyone's seen that on social media, but I guess there's a job where you cuddle baby pandas. And she was saying that that's what she would want to do. And I told her like, I'm so exhausted that the thought of cuddling a baby panda sounds exhausting. Like that sounds tiring to me. I don't want to cuddle a puppy. I don't want to cuddle a kitten. I don't want to like, no, I want to literally do nothing. And we ended up joking because I said, I want to cuddle on the couch with a blanket. And we joked that my next job could be a a blanket tester. Um, I mean, that's just where I was at. So I took this time off. I really wanted to spend time outdoors, um, but it rained like every day. So I I did the best that I could. (laughs) Um, And I went back to work um, and I realized that I I don't think that we should be doing this work full time. This this is not something that's meant to be done full time. Either we're doing it part time or we're doing it for like months and then taking months off like three months on, three months off, half a year on, half a year off, but this work should not be done full time. And the issue is money, right? The issue is always money because I don't think that we should be doing this work part-time and then having a second part-time job, right? We we need to rest and to take care of ourselves. So I went back to work day one. Of course, I'm flooded with emails and voicemails and trying to catch up, but, uh, Someone, not even an hour in, someone walks in looking for me. You know, my phone is ringing and uh, my anxiety levels go way up. Uh, I struggle with anxiety and I recognized during my time off that my anxiety went way down. Um, One of the ways that I recognized being away from work that my work affects my anxiety is my need for control. I have control issues. And uh, I, specifically in my home, my home needs to be completely tidy. I mean, when I go to bed at night, I want my throw pillows on my couch to be perfect so that when I wake up in the morning, I don't see anything out of place that needs to get done. and, And I recognize that this is my way of controlling something because I'm exposed to so much chaos at work that I have no control over. And I didn't know that. And, and it was, it's not easy to live your life that way, trying to have, I mean, I have a toddler, everything in place, you know, being hard on my partner because everything's not in place or he's not tidying up after himself or something so little. Um, 
but taking that time off work made me recognize how it's related to work. Because while I was off, I could leave stuff on the floor for days and I'd be like, oh, it's there, I'll get to it when I get to it. But when I'm working, that needs to be perfectly in place right now. And the moment I went back to work, my anxiety went up. I was getting irritated. My first day back from work, I walked in my home and I saw shoes in the hallway that I thought to myself, why is there so many shoes in the hallway? We don't need this many shoes, you know, and, and it's just recognizing these things of how my work is impacting my personal life. And so I talked to my supervisor that day I had supervision and I told him, like, I'm already anxious just one day back and I haven't even seen anyone. And he told me to stop taking new clients and to cut my caseload by half. And I, I think I started laughing because I was in shock that someone would say this to me. And, and I'm, I'm so grateful for, he wasn't the first person to say that to me. My supervisor before that was telling me to come back, to cut back. Um, but I, I'm so grateful for the supervisors that I have because I, they're social workers and they are revolutionary social workers. They really want to make these changes. And for my supervisor to tell me to cut back on my caseload, that was like, this is why I work here, right? Like, this is why I'm coming back to work because I'm supported. And, and being reminded that I don't have to do everything. I don't have to squeeze in every referral I get, every phone call I get. And it's easier said than done um, because when someone calls and they need help, and we think we can help or we, you know, we, we want to jump into action, but I'm learning to not do that. Um, you know, with my own ways, I use a, a planner and I'm, I'm filling in certain slots where I would leave blank for a client and I'm writing like I'm studying this at this time or I'm working on this training or, or whatever it is. So I'm making sure I do that for myself. I've had to turn away people who are trying to see me. Um, Part of the reason that I burnt out, well, one of the things that led to it was I had these back-to-back uh, -back mandated uh, reporting cases. I had to, I had to report two cases back-to-back -back one morning, and it was horrible. I've never cried so much. I cried a lot that <laughs> at work that day. Um, but you know, and those people will still sometimes try to engage with me, and I have boundaries for that. Right? Like, there's there's certain people that I will not meet with on a Friday afternoon. Because I know Friday afternoon, it's that time, right? I, I don't have the capacity after working all week to have to stay late with you if something happens. So it's really about practicing those boundaries um, and taking a couple of steps down from everything that I think I should be doing. And I'm still working on it. I mean, this, was, this all happened very, very recently. Um, and, and it did cause sort of like a identity crisis for me because I really identify as a social worker. This is what I've dedicated my life to. And so for me to find myself in a place where I wasn't sure if what I was doing here was, was it was hard. Um, and it's lonely um, because you can't talk to your family about it. They don't understand unless they're doing the work as well. They, they might kind of understand but um, yeah so I'm back at work and I'm 
have really good support from supervisors. I think that's really the most important thing. Um, we also have, I'm con we contract out another supervisor. Um, so I have like my direct supervisor at work, but I'm also getting supervision from someone outside of the agency who does similar work and has experience. And I've, I'm given a lot of autonomy in my position, which I really appreciate. And I'm given other opportunities to try different things to help me grow, like doing trainings and things like that. Um, so I've also tried to, I say, make my, my office better for my brain um, because my office doesn't have any windows. And I am not someone who's very like stylish or cozy. And so I've been making an effort to make my workspace better for my brain. I bought a lamp that has like different warmth settings instead of using the like fluorescent lights on the ceiling. Um, I have a plant that uh, a student intern had gifted me, but I would like to get some more. So I've been researching a little bit more about plants. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm trying to work toward, I'm changing from working with a laptop to actually having uh, desktop screens and utilizing the standing feature on my desk. Um, so these are all things that, you know, I'm very slowly doing. Um, that I know I should have been doing a long time ago, but for whatever reason, it's hard for me to change those habits or get to it. And and just recognizing how much I need to prioritize myself and how much we need to prioritize social workers uh, as much as we're prioritizing our clients, right? Because it's, it's almost like we're, we'll do whatever for our clients, but what about us? What about each other? What about our coworkers? What about your staff if you're in a su supervising position, right? So... Yeah, work in progress. I've started taking lunch breaks out of my office every day. Um, one day I will get outside on my lunch break, but still working on it. Um, and and I found since coming back and making these changes that I actually have more space to be present for my clients, to have room on my schedule, to squeeze them in more often and not be super booked out if they have certain crises where they need to meet more often. And, and I am back in the space of feeling grateful and honored to do the work that I do um, and honored to have these relationships and hold these spaces and, and have that gratitude after every session. Um, and that came with really cutting back on the workload. And, and I, I get a little bit nervous because I don't know where the road will lead. I don't know if I'll burn out again. I don't know if I were to leave the field what I would do. I have no idea. Nothing. But um, so, Christian, I think what, when you said that you realized you didn't want to be a social worker, I uh, looking back, I, I don't know if I could understand it that that day that you said it, but now that I'm a little bit older and a little bit more seasoned, um, I 100% support you saying that. <laughs> I don't think I had an issue with it that day, but I, I completely feel like I, I can relate to it. So that's my story, me trying to keep it short. <laughs> yeah. 
No, thanks for sharing that. And I just wanted to, you know, we have a lot of things to get through with the time, but there's some things that really stood out for me that I wanted to point out was one, you, you just presented a couple of great examples of, you know, being supported by your employer and those that you work with supervisor. And a lot of people, a lot of social workers aren't, you know, and we'll talk about that later. I hope, uh, I hope we can come back to what you were talking about, prioritizing social workers after we all go through. I hope we can come back and talk more about that. Uh, but also I like talked about, you know, you have, you had some habits that you're trying to get away from, but you know, you're doing different things. So that's creating new habits. And that's, to me, that's what it's all about. Um, I was wondering if I could ask one quick follow-up question as, you know, a fellow parent. One of the things that I struggle with, and, and I noticed Alicia struggling with as a clinical social worker, is that, um, you know, you come home and you're stressed out about things that are going on. Or you're anxious and you got these things on your mind, you know, especially for like you and Alicia, you know, you're going and you're talking to people and taking in everything from them. And oftentimes you don't have any time or space to, you know, let that back out. Or like you said, you have supervision, but you, you can't really talk about it too much. And so you come home and after a really draining day, mommy, 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 daddy, daddy, daddy. And you know, you love your kids and you want to be there for them, but like you, you're empty, maybe, you know, you're empty at that point. And uh, I was wondering if you had any, you know, I'm sure you, you, you've had experiences if you have any tips for, you know, how do you bring yourself back and, and, you know, reclaim some energy so that, uh, and some attention, attention's a big thing. So you can give attention to your son. What is his name? Moises? How do you say it? Moises? Uh, Moisese. Moisese. Um, how do you, you know, how do you navigate that and how do you bring yourself back to the, to the, to the present so that you can pay attention to your son when you're going through all these things? Um, it's really hard because I want to get home and take care of what I need to take care of. And the moment I walk in, it's mommy, 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 mommy. And it's like, well, can you ask your dad? No, mommy, 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 mommy. And I'm like, oh, please just ask your dad. No. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I just want to like put my stuff away and clean, you know, have a clean <laughs> space at home. Um, and so I don't think that I'm great at it. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm really proud of and I think is really important for a connection is that I'm still nursing. Um, so we can sit on the couch and nurse. And as much as I wish that we weren't watching this much TV, we can be, you know, he can have his tablet and relax on his, whatever he's watching. And I can be either on my phone or whatever, and we're still connected. Um, and there's still a part of me that feels guilty for it. Like we're not connected enough um, because we're, we're sort of like zoning out into our screens, but we are still having that connection. Um, he'll sit very close to me, even if he's not nursing. Um, and I try to spend a little bit of time playing with him. Um, I know the last couple of days, I think I've been able to make the time to sit on the floor with him and um, just connect a little bit. Like we have this like ABC, this alphabet puzzle so we do that together. We just got, he's been sick for like a month. So we got him like a doctor play kit and we play, you know, taking the temperature and those kinds of things to hopefully help him feel more comfortable taking his antibiotics. Um, so I just try to do that a little bit. Um, and then like reading books before bed and, and it's things like brushing our teeth, uh, changing our clothes, just trying to make those things having intention and making those things special, you know, him helping me move the clothes from the washer to the dryer, even though I want to just get it done and like get out the door. 
but taking those little moments to make those things special and fun, um, I think is how I do it. It is tiring. There's times where I just want to break or I'll try to take a nap and I can't because he comes to get me. So, so it is really difficult and I'm so grateful, you know, I kudos to you guys, but cause you have three, <laughs> and, but I have my parents here and they're so helpful or sometimes it's like, you know, my parents have my son right now. So I, you know, I try to, without overburdening them and asking them for too much, but I also try to ask them sometimes to, to allow me to have that alone time. Cause I love alone time. Like I, that's how I recharge. I'm an only child. I didn't grow up with a lot of stimulation. I like to be alone. And, you know, sometimes like I say, the answer is no, like don't ask me for anything. The answer is no. Um, something else that's, that I don't know if Alicia ha ex has expressed this to you, but something else that's been really difficult for me when it comes to children and being a mom is hearing my um, clients stories about them growing up and the abuse or uh, being shunned from their families, all of these things that for me is very, very, very painful. Um, that that's, that's hard. Um, in session and then trying to come home and trying to make sure that we're not doing that with our children too. So it's, it's a balance, but it's just trying to be intentional with the little things like brushing our teeth. Yeah. Well, I you know, I just want to say much respect to you, Natalia, and to Tui, but, you know, to be going and doing the work that you do and putting in all the effort to help other people, you know, and to, it's, I just want to emphasize, you know, how much of a challenge it is to be a parent in itself, but also to navigate that with being a good revolutionary type of social worker like you are. Um, it just deserves the utmost respect, and um, I hope that you get that. Respect. It sounds like you have a lot of respect at your at the at the your place of employment, but you know sometimes social workers are undervalued in this way. And I just wanted to say I have the utmost respect for you to be able to, you know, navigate that. And and the world is hard. You know, it's hard. The world is hard. And so for you to to be able to come home and be you know reflective and try to do different things to to you know be both a good social worker and a good parent, a good human being. I just want to say I have the utmost respect for you. Um. So thank you for what you do. Thank you, Christian. I want to move over to Marley for a minute. Um, Marley, so I, I'm a, you know, I'm a very reserved person, in, especially in like public spaces. You know, um, I'm more confident running a podcast or teaching a class or even public speaking than I am like talking to someone in the hallway about what's small talk. Basically, it's it's very very uncomfortable for me. Um, but there's always been. Uh, since I've been in college in the university, there's always been these individuals that I end up like clicking with in a class, for example, where we sit together and we sit together the whole time, like for the whole semester, and we become friends through that. And Marley's one of those people, I think it was actually in two classes, and I don't remember what the second one was, but one of them was statistics, an evening statistics class that was super boring, but I thought the professor was actually did a pretty good job at, at teaching the class. But anyways, Marley and I supported each other. You know, we I think we sat in the in the back and we, um, you know, we were always like, what's, we were both kind of like, do you know what's going on? No. Do you? No. But, uh, we got through it and, um, you know, we just, our circles were, they, they, uh, interconnected, you know, time and time again through friendship. Um, but also, you know, 
I lived uh, for a while. We lived in this place called the Marco Polo bo- building on Kapiolani uh, Boulevard. If you've ever been to Waikiki, it's just on the other side of the canal. And uh, I used to take my kids out uh, walking and we'd go well, either walk to Waikiki or walk to the other side over by Diamond Head and Kaimana. But I'd see Marley all the time. Out, she'd be out there jogging. Like, yeah, great. And we'd sit and we'd, and we'd catch up. Um, but I don't remember. I, I think it may have been the last time that I actually saw you in person uh, right there on Kapiolani Boulevard. And you were telling me uh, something similar. I, I can't remember exactly, but that you were burnt out and that you were taking a break or something like that. And you weren't working at the time. Um, and I know you're back at it now. So I was wondering, you know, if you could introduce yourself a bit, tell us a little bit about you and and tell us, you know, maybe either that situation, why you needed a break or another one, whatever's whatever's good for you. Yeah, sure. Okay. So I'm Marley, um, born and raised on Hawaii, you know, on in Honolulu, Hawaii, on a, the island of Oahu. So, um, no, I remember those moments, you know, like just talking little small talk with you. And um, I I just want to say, I, I never thought that we would have a pretty good connection because I think we're very, it's very true because I'm a, you know, I'm kind of very friendly, outgoing, and I just talk and I'm very happy-go-lucky person. In general, you guys know that, you know, so, um, but I think it was a very great, like, little, like, friendship that we had when we were in school Christian so I was I I, you know I I still think about that to you know this day about like my connections with people that were definitely very different for me and then finding like you know commonalities and being able to connect not just through social work but just as people but so my social work journey has been a little bit like obviously it was just like a lot of like little roads here and there, some barriers, some bumps in the roads. But I wanted to do psychology. I wanted to become a child psychologist when I was in college. But then I realized you have to get a doctorate and then you have to do like research base. And I didn't like that. I really wanted to be with people and interact with people and connect with people. So I always knew about social work, but I didn't really know it until I really got into like, um, like college and then going through just kind of different career paths. So I remember when I grad, when I was, uh, my senior year of my bachelor's in psychology, I had applied to UH Manoa's, um, social work program. And then at the end, I remember when they were um, sending out like acceptance or decline letters, I re- I found out that I was not accepted into the program. And that like devastated me because I was like, what do I do now? Like, what are my options? Like, do I just like stay out of school, work until I, you know, apply again? And then the option of going into the social work par- program as an undeclared um you know, was a great option that UH Manoa had where I could take two classes a semester. And um, and so that's what I did. And that's how I met Cache and Natalia, is that first year I was uh, a um, undeclared student, but I was still in social work and I felt a part of that group because I met some amazing people, you know, and then... I applied again, and then I got in, like officially got in, 
you know, and that was really great. And then I met Christian my first year, like official, you know, and it's just, I feel like the stars aligned and things were going really great. You know, I, the social program was definitely a challenge, but I think what I really loved was that being able to connect with people and even years later, like having that support and still talking about what we're doing and catching up on each other's lives and doing this podcast has been like amazing on like how strong these connections are years later. But um, I remember when I graduated in 2017, I was, you know, when you graduate, you're like so eager and you're just like ready for the world. You're you know, kind of getting ready to see what's out there and start, you know, you know, you have your master's degree and think that, oh my gosh, I'm going to, go out and get this great job and change the world or find meaning. That did not happen for me in the first, I think, year or two years after I graduated. Um, I was in a job where I think I was just there just to have a job. Um, I was in the substance abuse um, program and I was working with moms and kids and I at first liked it, but I think as time went on, I wasn't feeling it, but I was there because I needed a job. I need money. And that's sometimes how you get stuck in, in jobs or careers because you, you have no choice. You have to like, it's either like follow your dreams and maybe, you know, go from odd jobs or have a stable job and have money. You know, that's, that's, unfortunately, what a lot of people face, you know, and during the two years, I was at this job, I, 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 in some ways, I loved it. And the other ways I hated it, because I just didn't feel like I felt very stagnant. And I just felt like, what am I doing? I felt really lost on like, what my options were, what I wanted to do, and, you know, where to go. And also this organization was not really supportive. Um, and of course, another thing, funding. Funding was just, <laughs> that is something you always deal with, you know, in like social services in general is that they always cut your funds. So you have to do more with less. And that definitely contributed to like me burning out, me feeling stagnant, me feeling really lost. And like, what do I do? Like, do I just stay here because it's a decent paying job or do I take the risk of like quitting and trying to find a new, another job where um, I might be good at, you know, I was just like very not knowing what to do. And then I decided that I wanted to get my uh, social work license. So I started studying social work again and like actually reading and looking at, you know, some things that I didn't even learn about in school. And that actually sparked me finding social work again, finding some meaning on why I started on this journey, why I actually put in the time and the money into it. So I studied for like, I think, two to three months, you know, just like reading, writing. I mean, I the DSM five was my best friend for a couple months, you know, just, it was just crazy times. But I think as I even studied, I just really found like 
you know, social work again. And then when I took the licensing test and I passed, and I was like, yay. And that like really gave me a renewal and energy to be like, you know what? I, I think I can, I have the courage or I have, you know, to leave my job and just take a risk and just go for it. So 2019, I think it was around that time, Christian, when I did see you, I, um, I literally was like, you know what, I'm going to quit my job that I've been at for a good couple years. And I love my coworkers. I love my supervisor, but the organization just was not supportive. And I just was not happy. And I definitely dreaded going to work, you know. <clears throat> so I decided to quit. And not only that, I decided that I was going to take a trip. So I went on, I went to the mainland. <clears throat> and then I actually did a road trip through Canada for about four five weeks and I mean it was the best time ever like I think I needed that to just be like you know what I'm not gonna do work I'm gonna focus on me I'm gonna take this road trip I'm gonna go visit you know family I'm gonna visit friends like I was like I'm just I, I made a decision that I was just gonna so I quit my job in October 2019 and I decided you know what I'm not gonna work the rest of the year like I thankfully had enough money. <clears throat> I had a nest egg, you know, for I, I could survive. So I was like, this is my decision. I'm just going to quit and I'm going to travel. And then the next year I'm going to, you know, work on getting a job. And I think that's very important that sometimes you just have to really disconnect yourself from life and just do something completely different. Like, Years before, I would never have done that. I just quit my job and just travel in Canada in the wilderness for like weeks. It was great, though. I mean, I loved it. And I had so much fun. And I felt like that just rejuvenated my soul. Like I needed that. I did not realize how much I needed it <clears throat> until I'm driving in the middle of like forest. Like it really is like, I, you know, I'm Native Hawaiian. So, you know, we're very connected to our land. So, I love nature and I love being in nature. So <clears throat> going back to that in a different environment, you know, nature um, was an amazing thing. And I really, really needed it. I did because I felt so lost for so long that I needed to just really put myself in a different environment. <clears throat> so I did that, came back to Hawaii and I was like, gung-ho and like ready to do new stuff ready to tackle new things and then the pandemic hit <laughs> so even more so I was like oh my gosh what do I do like this I'm jobless and that's when the whole world shut down so I was forced to do nothing with no job and then <clears throat> that was tough that was really tough because you know, there was some, you know, social work in general was like, it's an essential job. And so like my other, you know, friends and classmates were still obviously working. And I'm just like, I have no job because the world is shut down. And uh, it was a very um, weird time for me because this was the longest I had not worked. I think I was 
um, just was not working for almost nine months. It was crazy times. It was weird. But at the same time, I think I also needed that too, to really just do things that I wanted to do as much as I could, you know? And so that was great. And then I finally started working in at a great organization in July of 2020. So I started working a new job during the pandemic. And that was definitely a very interesting experience because for so long, I had, I was so used to interacting with people in person. Like that's, that's just what we did. You know, like we worked with families, work with clients, work with our coworkers, our supervisor. So everything was very like, even more of a little bit of a disconnect too. It's just like, you know, and you just try to find those connections during a time where you're online a lot. But I think what I really loved about this job is that I was still able to work with people and connect with people in a more like supportive environment. So I really, really loved it. And being able to work during the pandemic was great because I really needed a job and I really needed money. <laughs> so, and where I work is I, you know, I support families that need help. They're going, they've gone through the child welfare system and they just need support after they've gone through the trauma of child welfare, you know? So I think that's where I found what I want to do is that, I, I mean, I do want to do therapy. That's definitely my goal, like years from now, but I think what I really, really, um, really um I say this connect with is connecting with people is being able to talk to people and hear their stories and I agree it is hard hearing trauma it is it is very hard sitting in it and I've definitely sat in a lot of trauma too and you know I just for me I just try to be there for my families as much as I can um and I feel I'm in a much more better place in my life, you know, when it comes to jobs, you know, and I really, I, I, I think what I've also learned throughout just working in social work is that I do need to take time for myself and, you know, you really do need to really just, I think it kind of was a great thing. I, you know, quit my job and went on a trip, but like, I felt like, in some ways, I was very drastic because I was like, I really had to leave. Like, I, it's like, I really had to go and go on this long journey. But, you know, so I just felt like, was that like really drastic? But I think you just need to, you need to take care of yourself. You really do. Like, even if it's going to affect you financially, like, just, just do it because you need to take care of your mental health. Because it is true, this job is, I mean, or this career is just full of a lot of trauma and a lot of stress. And, you know, I remember when we talked a lot about like self-care and burnout. We talked, I remember in school, we talked about it so much. And even just in general, we talk about it all the time. But I feel like we don't do anything until we get to the point where we are about to like, break down and burn out. 
And then we have to take care of these very drastic, you know, things. And so, you know, after that, I realized that, no, I need to take breaks. I need to take days to myself, you know, and be more aware and more conscious, like consciously taking it and not having like my supervisor or anyone tell me like, you need to take a break. Like, no, I should be able to check myself and be like, I'm not feeling too good or I really do need a break and take a day or two. Like, and that's a hard thing because I think we can all relate that it's just, we just do the job and we keep on going. And then until you hit like a wall and you're like, Oh, whoa, I think I need a break, you know? So I, I feel like being more conscious of myself and my mental health and what my, you know, where I, need to be or what I need to do to lower my stress. So, you know, it's great. It's okay. Like I always tell like my other coworkers who are younger and not a season that it's okay to take a break. It's okay to, you know, push, you know, change meetings, reschedule clients, reschedule your work in order for you to take a day or two off to, for yourself to do self-care, to take, just decompress, you know, it's okay to do that because honestly, the work will still be there when you come back after like a four day weekend. You know, I think that's a very important thing that, you know, I always tell people who are in this career is that, look, just take a break, take a day off, take a four day weekend, take a day, like take a break in the middle of the week, you know, just do it. Just, don't don't worry about clients or your families or your coworkers or supervisor. Just be like, I'm checking out for today. I'll see you tomorrow or I'll see you next week. You know, I think that's very, very, very important, you know, and just to take care of, you know, yourself because it really is true. I think we've heard this many times too, is that you can't um, take care of others. You can't take care of yourself, but, I think it's just, I think it's really hard because we don't really practice that as social workers because we just want to help people and very guilty of that, you know, that I just want to make sure everyone else is okay, but I'm not checking on myself, you know, and that's just how we get to the point of burning out. And, you know, I definitely have gone through my times of, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to do this? Do I really want to work with people and their trauma and seeing people on the worst days of their lives? Do I want to do that? And, you know, after a lot of time, I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, yeah, I want to do this job, you know? And I feel the same as Natalia of like, I don't know what else I would be doing if I wasn't doing this, you know? Like, I, I really don't know. I would be, I would feel even more lost if I wasn't a social worker or it, doing something that connect, that really connected me with people, you know, like I love connecting with people. You guys know that. Like, I really just love being able to share and, you know, just have great conversations and learn about people, you know, so that's what I, you know, I feel like this is, you know, my career, but I think it's just being more aware of what my my needs are and being a little selfish or just doing what I need to do for myself. I think it's very, very important. So 
that's kind of like my story a little bit. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Marley. I think you really, you did a really great job of, you know, using, you know, anecdotes in your experience to, you know, talk about how and why we should take breaks, um, how we should be able to step away. And I think one of the issues with that is, you know, what is social work's responsibility to us to make sure that we have those opportunities, which we'll circle back to in a minute. I just have one real quick follow-up question for you, Marley. You know, being in on the island of Oahu, you know, and like I said, the last couple of times I saw you outside, how does, you know, the land, the aina of Hawaii, how does that help you to, you know, facilitate connection to the land, but also to other people as a social worker and as a human being? You know, Hawaii has a, a unique way about that. And I was just wondering if you could add some quick perspective on that. Well, land's very important. I think just like any native or indigenous, you know, people, it's like we connect with our land. You know, we work this land. We've, you know, our fruits of our labor from this land and, you know, very spiritual people. So, I mean, Hawaii, like, unfortunately, a lot of other indigenous, you know, people, it's like having our land basically not just taken, but stolen creates a lot of trauma and, you know, these days, the Native Hawaiians, you know, trying to get their land and trying to get back to our culture because our culture is related to the land. Like we, everything is related to the land. And for it to be stolen, I mean, we can we can talk a whole lot about cultural trauma, generational trauma. I mean, we can talk about that for days, you know, but land's just very important because, you know, we work it. We've worked on this land. And this is where our ancestors are, you know, everything, every cultural like tradition or a lot of culture are related to the land and what, you know, the fruits of the land. And so it's very hard to like come to, you know, to know that the, you know, natives are fighting for to get our land back, you know, from and then we can talk a whole lot about colonization. <laughs> but land is just very important because we've worked it. It's connected to our culture. You know, every tradition we have is there. You know, so I think, you know, just being in Hawaii and going out in the mountains or into the forest, if you really just take a minute to, like, really center yourself, you can feel how much power the aina is, the land is and what it means to those that you know have come from generations and also also feel a little bit a feel a bit of the cultural trauma that's connected to land you know and it just everyone needs their land to keep their culture alive i feel like you know that makes sense <laughs> but it's very important yeah, thanks for sharing that. And again, we circle back. I hope that we can talk a little bit more about that because oftentimes, you know, those that are affected by negatively by colonization are the ones that have the least access to social work services and the things mm -hmm. that they need. So I hope we can circle back to that as well. But uh, thank you, Marley. Thank you very much. Um, I'll move over to Cache. And uh, my story with Cache is kind of funny. Um, I saw them for the first time, like my first semester. I think we had a, a orientation or something. And I thought that Cache ran the place. 
I think you were involved somehow. I don't remember exactly, but you must have delivered something like uh, talked at the beginning. But you seemed very much to know everything that was going on and to be involved. And I wasn't sure. I thought maybe you were a professor or maybe, you you know, you were organizing the department or, or something like that. Um, but I remember the first time I saw you, I remember specifically because you had this you had this cool hat that had uh, laces in it, uh, like the sh- shoelaces in the, in the hat. And uh, always got always had some good hats. Um, which, uh, by the way, shows your dedication, because I know Philly's playing right now in game one. Um, but, yeah, you, yeah, I tried to say hi to you, and you kind of just didn't even see me. You just walked by. And uh, But anyways, I always knew that I wanted to get to know you. I felt like that you were somebody that was going to be important for my learning experience and for my life. And, uh, you know, each of, my relationship with each of you has, kind of, has evolved kind of differently. Um, but, you know, I always thought that, you know, you had this kind of strength about you. And still today, today I say this between both you and your, and, and Chanel, your partner. Um, I feel like, you know, I wish sometimes I have what you had, this uh, free spirit that you all have as far as being able to say whatever's on your mind. Um, and, you know, without like a, you know, I don't know what you think or what you feel when you, when you say or do things, but it, it from my side, I've always had this sense of shame about myself, about like saying what's on my mind to some degree. And you all do that um, unapologetically, I feel like. And I really respect that. And uh, I hope you can talk a little bit about, you know, maybe where some of that power comes from or how, how, you, how you get that. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to open up. I know you've been through some things, too, since, uh, since we all graduated. I know you've had your own problems. And, and now, you know, you've moved the opposite direction to me and, and all the way over there on the East Coast in Philly pursuing a Ph.D. And you've got several other uh, uh, developments going on. And so I just want to turn it over to you to explain that however you want and, uh, you know, throw in a little story about, you know, you, you uh, taking care of yourself. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> first, I want to say I did not remember that first meeting. And now that makes sense <laughs> as to why you were looking at me like I was crazy and what my memory of your our first meeting was, which was being in the classroom and you walked in and you had on this black and red um, uh, BLM with the fist uh, t-shirt on. And I was like, okay, okay, cute white boy in Hawaii, BLM shirt. Okay, we could, you know, I could, I could get to know him. Um, and you, like you said, you didn't really talk a whole lot one-on-one. And I think the first time I tried to talk to you, you, you kind of looked at me like, well, and now it makes sense because you were probably thinking, why are you talking to me? And you just, you just, you know, um, act like you didn't see me before. I promise I did not see you. Um yeah, I think we were doing a lot of orientations and stuff back then. Uh, um, but any, anyway, I'm so glad that um, that we had a class together and were able to meet again and um, and 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 bond and create this friendship that we have. And I really appreciate our MSW crew in general. I, I appreciate um, how we continue to show up for one another and. Um, also, how we hold one another accountable. Um, that's really that's really good. So, uh, I, yeah, y'all are family to me. So, um, so thank you for having having us here. Um, so, yeah, my story is a little, you know, I'll, I'll I'm gonna skip over a whole lot because I, <laughs> I've been through a whole lot. I've been in the profession in some capacity for a long, very long time. 
Um, and so I kind of want to just get to kind of where we're where we're at right now. But what I will say is that um, I am one of those people who who was I don't consider myself ever not in quote unquote the this profession. I mean I've been in different sectors. Um, you know, I've worked in education system, I've worked in shelters, I've worked in mental health, I've worked in, edu you know, uh, just higher education, I've worked in all these different, you know, nonprofits, whatever, all these different sectors. But, but for me, the human experience is, is social welfare. And so no matter what capacity, or what degree I was coming to something with, I was showing up as the same, the same version. Um, and so, by the time I got to UH, um, I so I'm born and raised in Philly, uh, uh, stolen Lenape land, occupied Lenape land, um, and uh, I, what my mom moved us when I was in high school uh, down to uh, Georgia, right on the outskirts of uh, Atlanta, um, which in addition to being um, being multiple culture shocks was also an educational shock because I went from school district that was at the time in the top 10 of the country to a, a state that was at the bottom 10 of the country. And so the drasticness with that created something within me that automatically I had to fight for my education all the time. So I ended up at in, in Hawaii, having the experience of a lot of people coming to me saying, you know, talking about how unhappy they were. And, and I had, I had, I took a different approach in that conversation as to you being the, 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 uh, the orator, if you will, or the curator, that's the word I'm looking for, of your educational experience. Now, to an extent, that also doesn't absolve the educational system, the departments, the social work profession and the school of social works around the country, um, it doesn't absolve them of their accountability to to provide better opportunities. So I, I will say that. Um, so I got my undergrad in child and adolescent development, um, where I specialize in out of school time, which is basically every single thing except for teaching, because I knew I did not want to be in a classroom, even though I had been in a classroom for five and a half years. Um, but I'm not a person who can do one thing. Um, so when I graduated with my MSW, I got to work pre, I mean, while I was in school, I had been networking, I had been building, you know, all of this was as I was doing school. Um, and then when I graduated, I got to work with building a portfolio, essentially. That's not how I look at it, but that's how I know the world looks at it. Um, and this included four or five streams of income. Um, now, there's a purpose to me saying all these things. I'm not saying them to, to brag or boast. Um, it's the buildup. So stay with me, <laughs> folks. But um, and the first nonprofit I worked for after graduation, I um, did so much within the organization. Um, and you know that saying, like, people don't leave their work, they leave their organization, they leave their managers, they leave, right? So they leave the leadership. Um, and so that's essentially what happened for me. Um, it was not a nonprofit. While it was a, a, a nonprofit that, you know, specialized in um, gender-based violence, um, what I'm sure many people experienced, particularly working in the nonprofit industrial complex, 
uh, within that sector is that they often are sometimes the greatest perpetrators of violence on the folks that work within the organization. And we could talk about that. That's a whole other thing. But um, and so I left that organization. But before I left that organization, I had a meeting with a colleague slash friend um, who told me to do a manifestation, to write down a manifestation. What did I want in my next um, position? How, what salary did I want? What what did I want it to look like? You know, who did I want to work with? Like all of these things. And so I did that. And um, within a few months, I would say I had an organization, you know, an executive director of an organization that I had been in community with for years now at this point um, come to me and say that they needed, you know, they they wanted someone to to help build this this, a new program. And so um, that was part of my transition plan. But I also had all these other things. I was building my own business within um, Hawaii of of consulting Um, there. You know, I did a lot of work around. Um, uh, you know, DEI work around uh, uh, inclusion of uh, equity and inclusion with with uh, the queer and trans community. Um, and the way that I always talk about it is from an indigenous perspective, which I think is is uh, appreciate, appreciated, particularly somewhere, you know, like Hawaii. Um, and then and so I've, I've always had plans for myself. Right. And so these things, this is going great. But Somewhere around 2019, I started coming home crying. And this is not me. I, I do not cry about work. I'm a worker. I'm a, I'm a you know, I, I love learning. I love school. I, but anybody who knows me, you know that I, those, those places are actually refuges for me. So I have a slightly different relationship to them. Um, and uh, I started crying every time I came home because what was happening for me is it wasn't the work. It was the systems. It was my my the the necessary evil of have to, having to remain in relationship with systems if I was going to remain in this work or so I thought and so um one of the things that happened was I got to work applying for doctoral programs now doctoral programs had, a doctorate had always been a part of my plan and at this time it felt like it was the right time because all of these things were happening. I built this incredible portfolio. I also was getting older and I was like, if I wait too long, I'm not going to do it, you know? So um, it seemed like the right time. It seemed like that was the path. Um, and, you know, I also, I listened to spirit universe, you know, whatever folks want to call it. And, um, and I also knew that I needed to get away from direct service work because I was losing hope and I was no longer believing the things I was saying. And I am a person who believes that you do not stay in the work if you, um, not saying if you have blips, uh, we all have uh, times of, of feeling hopeless or feeling like, what can I do? How can I, but I was in a despair that was different. And I, I work with youth and young adults majority. So um, it was, it felt necessary to me to be believing the things that I was saying to them in our interactions. And when I was no longer believing that change was possible, I knew that I couldn't continue the direct service work, at least. Now I was doing all this other stuff, but at least I couldn't do that. So I applied for doctoral programs, got in, we moved, um, and I started my doctoral program. Um, You know, things were going great. You know, I was right on path. And in uh, Christmas Eve 2020, I um, suddenly, without any notice, 
uh, lost um, one of the most important people in my life. Um, as far as I am concerned, she is my mother's co-parent for me, at least was my mother's co-parent for me. And that is my mother's sister, my aunt. And, um, and that was huge. Um, but like the good workaholic that I was, I went right back to my program that following semester because it was my first year of doctoral program and I can't let nobody see me sweat, right? So I took care of the funeral. I became my grandmother's primary caregiver. I proceeded to start going up and down the road between Philly and, uh, you know, Eastern Shore, Virginia. Um, and as well as, uh, you know, I have, <laughs> I have other, I have a lot of places I got to go on a regular basis. Um, and uh, then that summer we had um, the summer of 2021, we had, um, uh, qualifying exams because at the university that I'm at, while most doctoral students take them after their second year, we take them after our first year. And I got to say that I really appreciated that because my, my, my mind, my spirit and my body held up to get me through that. And then in the middle of the summer, I found out that I, it was like July something, 2021. I found out that um, I had passed my qualifying exams, all of them, so I would not need to retake anything, which I was holding out for. And I immediately, about a day or two later, had a nervous breakdown. Now, this had nothing to do with school for me, right? This had nothing to do with work. All of this for me was personal. However, for me, I don't live a compartmentalized life. So what that meant was that my personal and professional don't don't really separate. So when I had that nervous breakdown, I was not able to do anything else. There was no school, there was no work, there was no, you know, um, interactions with friends and, and going places and doing things that didn't happen. And for a year, I didn't do almost anything. Um, I also want to take a moment in this <laughs> right now to just say that I recognize the privilege of, that I had of being able to do that. I also, at, not in the moment, but later, recognized that I had been preparing my life for such a moment as that, right? Because I built a community around me that allowed me to be able to do so. I was at a university in a program that allowed medical leave without consequence, right? So I created a circumstance for myself that allowed me to, to take, basically to take care of myself and to be taken care of. Um, and so when I returned back to things just last year in 2022, not really until the fall of 2022, I had to return an entire, I returned, not had to, I returned an entirely different person. That loss, that breakdown changed me in my DNA, right? And it also meant that it changed how I have to work. So I now identify as a recovering workaholic. Um, it is very difficult for me not to work because I enjoy my work so much. Um, but what I don't enjoy is continuing generationally, because we carry generational trauma as well. So it's not been just my work, I recognize, that I've been fighting with systems that are not planning on changing. And I, I had to come to that realization for myself. 
And so what I've decided to do, one of the first things was I made a professional commitment to myself to no longer, at least for the, the time being, work with systems, at least in certain capacities, the, cert, the, the current systems that we have. I committed to building new systems, finding new ways to build systems, to finding ways for us to work, particularly, you know, black and brown indigenous folk to um, work within the capitalist system that we are forced to live in, but also to work without it um, so that hopefully we can either move away from it in its entirety or we can um, we can make it so that it has to shift. And while some people may be wondering, what the hell does this have to do with social work? It has everything to do with social work because social work, the profession, has participated in the systems that keep people needing social work, social welfare resources, right? And they also, as a profession, um, perpetuate, perpetuate um, the same ideals, unfortunately, uh, that uh, that we are supposed to, as a profession, be fighting against. And so part of this, when we talk about self-care, I get frust- I have gotten frustrated, not us, but as a society, because we say, oh, go get a pedicure. Oh, go to the spa. Oh, the- meanwhile, you don't have no money. You don't have nobody to watch your kids. You don't have no time off. If you do, it's not paid. So now you got to make a decision. Do I go to work and get paid or do I take care of myself, spend more money and not get paid, right? Uh, We don't pay our students. I mean, I'm so happy that right now there is a movement happening across the country to to press social work, uh, schools of social work to make sure their intern, uh, the the students are paid for their uh, practicums and internships. And we should be, right? This is work that, that um but but somehow we ended up in this in this place of of because we are i say social work <laughs> likes to tell us because we work with those suffering that somehow we should be suffering all the time as well um because the the gift is just in see you know in helping people and that is true and we live in a system in a society um that uh, is extraordinarily individualistic and social work, social welfare is supposed to be the opposite of that. So one of the things in addition to no longer working with systems that I have started doing is cooperative development. Cooperative development is social work. It is social welfare. It is literally just the Western word definition phrase for community welfare. It is building economic sustainability and welfare within your communities. It is owning your communities. It is owning your schools. It is owning your homes. It is owning your, well, it is stewarding the land and owning the properties, right? It is making sure that you as a community have control over what's coming in and out of your community and what's what's happening, right? And so, um, and and not, not to say that this is a, a like a, a just taking one thing and moving it into another space because we have to be careful of that too. But I think that um, a lot of what I experienced and Christian, this is why I was not mad. I loved when you said what you said in your final, in your final class, um, because I understood that. And I knew that all it was, was you needed to figure out how to be your kind of social worker. 
And they were trying, you know, often not just them, not just that university, but most universe. That is the that is the academic world, right? Try to fit you into a box. And what I appreciate is that nobody on here fits into a box. And I think that's one of the reasons why we all um, came together. So that's that's my story. I'm kind of going to leave it there because I know you you all have questions. Um, but that's I think coming back and recommitting things in my to things in my personal life and then making that making a commitment to things in my professional life so that I could continue those commitments in my personal life um, was really important. And I want to say, I might add that it doesn't mean that everything is all better. It doesn't mean that the burnout, the sadness, the hopelessness sometimes doesn't still exist. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means how can I continue to navigate this society in which we live unless I'm going to move to Switzerland, which I could do, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, how can I do that in the healthiest way for me and those around me? So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I, pre I appreciate it. And I just want to give, a uh, before I follow up on this, I just want to give a quick update. You know, we're going over time than we normally do, but this will be the, I'm going to ask Cache one more question. Then I have a critical question for everyone. And I want to give a little bit of time for, even though we're going long for, all, for everybody to dialogue a little bit, then I'll turn it to Doreen. She has some questions and then we'll take questions from the audience and we'll wrap it up. Um, but my follow-up question to you, Cache, is, you know, you mentioned so many good things that we should, could spend a whole podcast talking about, which I hope we touch on in just a minute. And I hope you come back, but you know, you, what I sense, you know, that you and I kind of have in common is this sense of, you know, tension or resistance. Um, and sometimes a criticism I have for social work in general is that social work as a profession and at individual social workers take for granted that things might be able to be different and things haven't always been this way. And so, you know, and that's, I think some social workers get labeled as gatekeepers for organizations and for, for different things. Um, and, you know, I want to show compassion for those people, too, because everybody's not aware of the systems that they're caught up in. Um, but I want to know, you know, like what what feeds that for you? Like, how do you. Um, you know, where does that resistance come from and how do you decide how to how to pick your battles, you know, because we could especially in, it was, when you're talking about systems that you could be resisting all day long everywhere and you wouldn't have any energy. left. So, you know, where where does that come from and, and how do you pick your battles? Yeah, I'm not good at picking my battles. I think that's why I just left systems work um, because you're right. Now, that doesn't mean I'm never going to interact with it, but I, it's just how I interact with it is different. It's a good question. I think it's multiple places. And I, I would be remiss if I said that the, the first and foremost places is those who came before me. I mean, I, I carry so many, so much of my ancestral um lineage, I feel it in me. I've been feeling it in me since I was a child, even though I didn't have the language. Um, and I, I had, you know, I had my aunt who fed my, like all of that, you know, when I wanted to make sandwiches for people, my, my grandmother tells the story. Every time we give people rides through Philly, she's like, you know, cachet with tell us to get their allowance and, and buy sandwiches and bring them down to the subway. 
you know, and I'd be like, I'm not giving you allowance just to take it that, you know, buy sandwiches for people and say, but like, that was me as a kid. And I think I just cannot stand not right. I cannot stand when I know something could be better. And it seems like for whatever reason, people just don't want to make it better. And I think that I'm always wondering what is that reason? There must be something that you need too. There must be something that you fear losing, that you, you know, fear, maybe fear getting. There must be something that you, some experience you've had that is making you feel like, and this is the phrase I've been using so much lately, like this is the hill you really want to die on. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I don't understand why it's so controversial for people to have basic human rights and resources. That's literally all I want for people. I don't understand how we live in a nation with so much, so many resources. So, you know, we talk about housing being an issue, but we have so many vacant properties. It's not actually an issue. It's only, it's, it's, it's one of the, the, you know, everything's a social construct. So it's like housing as an issue is only, is a social construct because it's literally available. It, we, we have enough housing to house everyone in this country and we just flat out refuse to do it. We create policies, we, you know, and so I am, a, I, my, my, you spoke of Chanel, which people might not know is, um, is my wife. Um, and we've been together 18 years. And when you say, you know, we just celebrated our 18th anniversary in February. So when you say, like, we talk to, about each other, you know, about everything with each other, we have to. I would, you know, we would never, we would, and we, 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 we say that a lot lately. Like, how do people not talk to each other? You know, how can you be in relationship and not talk to each other? And I look at social work as the same thing. It's just being in relationship. I'm building a relationship with you. I might not like you. I might not like everything that you say and do. I might not like the fact that you, you know, come here high every single session, but I'm so glad that you came. Can we start there? And somewhere we forgot that, right? And so I'm, I have a commitment. I just have a, it's not even a, a, a conscious commitment. It's an uncon. it feels, sometimes it feels, um, like a cruel joke. Cause I don't think I could get out of it completely, even if I wanted to, um, but it's like, I can't not care. Um, and I think, and then I get mad when I think people aren't caring enough. So to answer your question, the fight comes from a lot of places. Uh, it also comes from my, my wife. She has been instrumental over these almost 20 years and making sure that I continue to speak up in spite of how I think people may be perceiving me or receiving me or, you know, whatever. Um, and um, I think it's important that we build our support systems, that we have people around us who don't just tell us what we want to hear, that, you know, um, it, it's been the people who raised me. It's been my, it, it, it is my ancestors. Um, and I don't pick my battles very well, but I am learning to pick them better. Um, and I need to build better boundaries, which I think, we don't even talk about that in self-care, but I think that is the primary. If you don't learn how to build boundaries, the rest of self-care is almost moot. So 
You know, I have a, I have a, an away message on my email right now that says I'm celebrating my birthday all week. I'll be back next week to answer your email. You know, that's a boundary and a one I never would have put in place before. So, yeah. Yeah. And much respect to you for that. You know, I think many people and myself included in certain situations, you know, you feel shame at, at doing something like that. And when you mm -hmm. think about it, that's so illogical. It doesn't make any sense, especially for social workers. You know what I mean? So much respect yeah. to you for, you know, for that aspect of you. And I've, you know, I've, I've learned a lot from you and I continue to learn from you in that regard. So thank you for that. Um, so I wanted to turn it over. I got my critical social worker question. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the need to take care of ourselves. Um, and many of you have, all of you have, uh, you know, presented us anecdotes and examples, stories about that. Um, sometimes it's so hard. And I just want to give a couple examples of like, and what I see largely tied to the over-professionalization of social work. Um, you know, a good example is here in uh, Juneau, Alaska, Southeast Alaska would be a better, uh, a, a better example. They have a shortage of social workers, like many other kinds of workers or professionalized workers um, here. And so oftentimes the strategy is, is they'll pay somebody, you know, $10,000 bonus, another 10,000 moving bonus. You can move, move there or whatever. But then they don't provide the resources for those individuals to take care of themselves when they move here. And if you can imagine, depending on where you're moving from, which is too bad that we can't find local, you know, produce, produce these social workers locally. But, you know, if you had somebody that just thrown it out there, somebody from the lower 48 somewhere, the, the continental United States, and they, uh, they come up here and they get this big bonus, but they're not sure what to expect when they get here. And, you know, the weather is different than some places. This is by far not one of the warmer places in Alaska, but you know, it rains a lot and it's a different type of uh, attitude and it takes a different, it takes a different kind of person to survive here. Uh, to add to that, there's a ton of trauma historically presently um, in these communities. And so it's a lot to work with. And so if you get come here and yeah, you got your $20,000 and maybe you get a good paycheck, but you know, you start doing the math and if you don't, you know, if, if, especially as COVID was coming around, you know, it's a mandatory five days to take off for COVID. You start subtracting the days. Your sick leave is often conflated with your vacation time. And so you say you take the five days off because you get sick. And then you take another five days off because your kid gets sick or maybe your spouse gets sick and can't take care of the kids or whatever. And then, you know, maybe you were burnt out a couple of days and they don't have, you know, mental health days. So you take a couple more days and then you don't have any time for vacation. And so you're here in an isolated community that the only way in and out is to fly in and out, which is expensive, you know, and they, you know, it's monopolized because Alaska airlines is the only one coming in and out for the most part. And so two years into these people's contract or a year, a year plus into their contract, they're burnt out and they have nowhere to go. And they ended up, they ended up breaking their contract and, and leaving. And it affects so many things here because you know, the people that are, that are dealing with trauma that are getting therapy, they deserve to have consistency you know, with the people that they're working with, they deserve to have somebody that's able to take care of themselves. So they're able to take care of them. Um, but for some reason, they don't seem to get that. And I think, again, it's the it's because corporations are running these things. And then insurance or insurance companies are dictating the care and the level of care or what kind of care can be provided. Because You know, you got to be paid. You know, and then another element to that is, you know, if you go look on go to Indeed and type, I don't care which city you type in, it's going to come up at the top with sponsored uh, LCSW jobs, for example, that sit, claim that you can make 100K plus a year, and then you talk to them, and it's because they want you to see like 80 clients a week. 
think about that. That may be an exaggeration, 80 clients, but I mean a lot of clients a week, right? Um, you know, I think, so just think about, even for those of us that aren't social workers, you know, you think about sitting down to somebody with a traumatic background. We're talking about major things, historical trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, incest, all, all kinds of things that people are dealing with, suicides, deaths, all sorts of things. And you take that in all day long, over and over and over and over again. And you get home and you got to take care of your kids. You know, you might have an education gig on the side. You might have a side gig. You might be doing all these things. And you're burnt out and, and you're not supported. Um, people shouldn't, you know, there's no way that uh, clinicians should be seeing that many people, especially with, with backgrounds of trauma, in my opinion. And so my question to everybody is this. You know, what is social work's responsibility to social workers in this regard? And by social work, I mean the just the concept in itself, the idea of social work, the profession of social work, universities that, uh, you know, facilitate the education of social work, the NASW, the agencies, the corporations. Um, what What is social work's responsibility to us, to the social workers, to ensure that we have, we're able to care and take and provide that care for ourselves so that we can help others. And um, you know, to me, it's just such a, an issue that, that hits home so much because, you know, we, I remember going through, going to conferences and even being in school and taking classes on social work and going, you know, workshops on social work. And I'm a lot of the times I'd be thinking like, damn, I need self-care to go to these self-care classes, if that makes sense. I need, I just need some time is what I needed, some time and someone to talk to. That's all I need right now. Um, but, you know, what obligation do we have? Because I guess the other side I wanted to mention is there are very high requirements for like uh, um, an MS, a master's in social work, an MSW, for example, and the licensure beyond there. You know, you have to go to an unpaid practicum twice to get an MSW, you know, for two years, some, some people, three, depending on advanced standing and all that unpaid practicum, you have to, you know, take licensure exams. You have to pay all sorts of money. Uh, some people have to take out loans, indentured servitude, basically, so they can get a degree to go and practice social work. So if they have such high requirements for us, how come it's not on the other side? Um, you know, why isn't a corporation that hires social workers? Why aren't they have, why aren't there certain requirements if you want to employ an LCSW? Why aren't there certain requirements that require you to make sure that they're cared for? Because there's not. Uh, I'm not saying anywhere, anywhere. But um, so that's my question to you, just in general. What is social work's obligation to take care of us, the social workers, in regards to us being able to care and provide for ourselves? And I'll turn it over to any of you. Let's just dialogue this for a moment before we turn it over to Doreen. I, I can start with that. Um, I want. I want. I do want to start with a blurb that this is not just social work, right? Um, I, I just want to make sure that we're not villain only villainizing, because this is also right. The education system is a systemic problem all in of itself, and so the way in which the university system educates is a problem across the board. Um, I think this is a personal, well, all of this is a personal thing, but I, I think that one place that um, the social work profession went wrong is trying to compete with hard sciences. 
because what happened in the education realm with that was it created a disconnect between um, between the so between social workers like on the on the spectrum, right? And so when you look at like we don't have a a, a system if if you get a medical degree you can be a physician anywhere, right? If you get an MSW you or an LC, if you do your, your hours and all, you know, you, you can't take that to every place you have. I mean, you can take it, but there's more requirements you got to do. Some places you might have to take another class. You might have to take another test. You might have to, you know, do more hours. You might, there's a whole, they make it so difficult. Um, and so the fact that we don't have a, you know, a, a, um, a cohesive system in this in this nation makes it very difficult to practice social welfare. Um, also, the removal again, as I said, of indigenous indigenous practices within social welfare, the colonization and the westernization of the uh, of the of social welfare itself. So how communities take care of one another, right? We put policies in place that decided that a state would take care of a child better than a family, which is why one thing I appreciate in Hawaii is how is kinship care, right? The requirement that by law, you have to contact someone within the family and try to qualify them before you send the child outside of the family. That is something that social welfare can do. And that's just as simple as being responsive, culturally responsive, right? So I think, and I'll wrap this up, that there are, there's so much responsibility and accountability that the that the profession, the the culture of social work, social welfare has and uh, and and has so much accountability and responsibility that they have that they have not lived up to, um, and so much repair work um, that would need to be done. That it's best for those of us, those I, I'm calling myself a divergent now, so the, us divergents, right? Figure out how to, or, or educate the systems by diverging within. If you stay within, great, you diverge within. If you leave, you diverge without. But constantly keeping essentially our foot on the neck of NASW, national, of your state chapter, of maybe your, if you know, if you have local affiliations um, and, and holding them accountable to what it is that your community needs uh, that you know, maybe you even need as an individual um, that the organizations need their financial responsibilities. I think they have, I mean, there's just, there's so much. I'll pass it on. We'll never cover it. Um, but I think that it's, it's um, sometimes it's too big for, I think that even the profession to imagine doing something different, which is a shame because doing something different might actually be easier, but Yeah, and I like how you keep emphasizing, you know, in you know, indigenous ways, because I feel like that's what like the real spirit of social work aligns with, and we'd be, as a as a profession or whatever, you know, we'd be uh, we'd be making the right move to push it toward push it in that direction, uh, and I think it is going that way, anyways. You know, more and more exposure, but we'd do well to to continue to push in that direction. Any thoughts from from anyone else? 
I think there's like so many changes that can be made, but of course the finances is such a big one. Like I had said, I don't think this work should be done uh, full time, um, but we should be taken care of in order to not need to take out loans to do things like pay rent. Um, and I, a lot of this work, a lot of the work that I've done is nonprofit. Actually, all the work that I've done is nonprofit. Um, so funding comes from other people and other people's, their rules and their requirements. And one thing that I hate is having to do certain assessments and paperwork for funders. And I would love to see NASW, whoever, whoever has, um, more power in regards to these regulations to 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 know to being able to advocate to stop requiring having to do all this paperwork all these regulations that make things so complicated it's wasting time it's wasting rapport it's re-traumatizing and so that's one of the things that i really would like for us to be able to step away from um, but it's all related to funding and, and the people who are creating these regulations are not frontline staff. I don't know if they've ever done this type of work, um, but it's so disconnected, the things that they're requiring us to do in order to get funding. That's not even enough. So for me, the funding is a really big, big piece of it. Yeah, thanks. Um, I know it goes on with like funding, but you know, as I work with like different resources and programs, I, you know, always think that a lot of our resources or programs are just band-aids for things. Like they don't, they're, they're just like, here, I'm just going to throw you a resource or throw you a referral or, you know, anything like that. But it doesn't go anywhere. I feel like a lot of our programs or resources are just band-aids and they keep our, the people that we work with in like this very stagnant state of like, okay, I'm getting all these resources, but there's no way for them to move forward and be able to do like more than just, oh, here's a resource this is gonna sustain you for a little while. So I feel like, I know it comes with funding and policies and all, all that stuff, but like the idea of like creating programs that help and move clients forward not just putting a band-aid, like literally just like not putting back, like maybe just something that just propels them forward from this spot. Because a lot of, you know, we've worked with so many people where we try and help them, but they're stuck because there's no, there's nothing further. That makes sense. You know, of like just having programs that are able to help people move, like get unstuck, you know, and, you know, move towards, an actual like future, you know, and that's what I think is when I think about all these programs and resources. I mean, there I, a lot of them are good, but it doesn't, it does not help these people that we are trying to help really be able to take care of themselves, be able to become independent or be able to move on to a different, you know, like, part of their lives, like grow, they basically able to help people grow. So, you know, I'm thinking that being able to just work, 
I guess, like revamp or like make new ones, new programs or change that just the way programs are, you know, made or thought of. So I was just like thinking that we just need to expand our resources and, you know, expand programs to be able to help people that would work grow and be able to take care of themselves after we're done with services like we can't be in services with people or we try not to be in services with people for like ever we want them to be to guide them not hold their hand the whole way and you know because there's a lot of people that need help too but we want to help develop those skills for people to move forward in their life so just being able to like revamp programs and not just become band-aids for people that we work with Yeah. You know, I always wonder, you know, like culturally here in America, you know, is it because we, you know, the way our culture is laid out that we just can't find a way to value social workers and those populations that people that social workers often work with uh, because we're still so stuck in individuality and and whatnot. We can't see the need for that. Um, I think, you know, um, not to debate uh, anything right now or anything, but, you know, we, we send a lot of money overseas for different reasons, often like for war and whatnot. And, you know, I think Tupac Shakur said it very simply, you know, we got money for war, but we can't feed the poor. Uh, it's one of my favorite little clips um, that says a lot, but I know you were running way over time and we, I know Doreen's been waiting patiently. So Doreen, I want to turn it over to you, uh, you know, and then we'll, if, uh, with the audience that we got still sticking around. Well, I see there's already some questions coming through, but we'll open it up for that. So Doreen, I want to turn it over to you. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay. Yeah. I apologize. First, I just want to apologize um, at the beginning. I missed the last half of Natalia's um, sharing and then the first half of Marley's um, the struggles of remote technology in in remote Alaska and so I you probably notice a different background and everything and I live in a really small village so I was like running out the door from my work my office <laughs> and ran home and connected from my bedroom <laughs> and so um, so I'm really bummed I missed part of that, but I'm definitely going to listen back. Um, but I, I really enjoyed your guys' stories today. And I think a lot of it really comes back to Cache's sharing of systems and what is required of us in this field. And, um, like Marley was saying it kind of we're just putting the band-aid and it's you know it's not we're not making headway and we're not moving forward and so things definitely do need to change and i just want to say cache i i hope christian in the future brings you on as a special guest for our class that he's teaching us this semester which is policies and issues because you hit the you hit the nail with that one um with what you're doing and your thoughts and i really appreciate your um indigeneity and how you're you're trying to bring that into um what you want to do um and what you want to change um because myself as an in indigenous person um 
we talk about that a lot in our BSW cohort program. And so um, with Christian bringing that in this semester and what we've been learning over the past couple of years towards our BSW, um, I think you would really love our program. Um, and I guess uh, I've been like making little notes along the way, try, like trying to come up with questions, but you guys have been answering it. Um, but I did want to um, talk about what Natalia was saying at the beginning of you're so right this is not a full it's not feasible to have this that be in this field full-time we should have these sabbaticals and time off and it's hard to be really present when you're just dealing with trauma and it's not that we don't want to be present for our people it just takes a really big toll on our psyche and um so my question i guess is you talked about how the support of your supervisor was really helpful for you and um the time you took off and so i was just curious like what really helped you um come back feel stronger and I, there's no perfect supervisor, quote unquote, but what really helped you? Um, because I'm sure I, I, I see some people in the, in the audience that, you know, are in those roles. And so what would you say, um, are really good attributes, um, to help people come back from burnout? Well, I mean, I think that the supervisor's piece is really, really important. Um, if you're not feeling supported from your supervisor, I think you should leave. Um, cause that's the reason I'm here is because I have good supervision. I come to work every day and I feel like I come first. My family comes first. Me and my family units come first before work. Um, and I have, and they trust me to know what's best with my work day. Um, I think it's really important to check in with yourself and I mean, recognizing mistakes that I made um, when, when I had those back to back mandated reported calls, I was sitting in an office crying and someone asked me, what do I need? And I said, I want to go home. And I didn't go home because I, I felt like I still needed to show up for my next appointments because rescheduling them was going to be too much. And so I think I would have been supported, but if someone can step in and be like, go home, I'll take care of the rest. I'll call all of your, your, your next scheduled appointments and I'll cancel them for you. Go home. Um, and so I know that I think a lot of us in social work think of ourselves as the clinician, but a lot of us are also going to move up into being able to supervise and making these bigger system changes. And that's why I think it's so important to stress that we're the ones who have the, the capacity to support one another and you know, future employees. Um, something else that I that I hadn't mentioned that I think was really helpful is that I took on a project during my time off. Um, I started planning my wedding and I that was really fun for me. I, I had never done anything like that. And just to be able, I think that uh, wedding planning can be really stressful, but to be able to have this time to just like have a project, um, I, I found a lot of joy in. Um, and it was a joy that I haven't felt in a really, really long time. So just having that project was, even though like I made all these plans that didn't work out and had to cancel them, it was just so fun to look into something like that. Um, 
so I think having having these sort of projects or hobbies um I was thinking about joining a dance class during my time off but the, the I don't have the resources to do that um unfortunately but but trying to find something like that I think was helpful and 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 making those changes in your day like I took I don't I my emails used to come on my phone all day long I took that off like why am I checking my emails on my phone when I'm not at work so it's also making those changes so it's a combination of things but it's really about checking in with yourself and and trusting your gut because I know for me personally trusting my gut is something that I am just learning to do because I, I used to question myself when something didn't feel right and now I'm starting to believe myself and, and that something is wrong and that I need to move away instead of feeling this like, no, I need to keep going. Um, yeah, hope that answers the question. Yes, thank you so much for that. And sorry, I have to turn my mic off in between talking because um, my internet is, it's not strong enough. But it, Thank you so much for that. And I, it really, it kind of goes in line with what Marley was sharing, how, you know, we feel guilty when we take that time for ourselves. And, and especially in this field, you know, we're, we, we're empaths. We come into this, this field because we care about others. And so when you, you, you know, you're so invested in helping all the time and then you, start realizing yourself is being neglected you then feel guilty when you want to take that or you know you need to take that time for yourself and so i was curious marley if you can share um you know what ways um you know it's really draining to work with vulnerable populations and you can you know love your job and love you lo love what you do but it can also simultaneously be draining at the same time um and so what ways do you help yourself feel present when you know those feelings are starting to creep in and you're starting to zone out a little bit um and you know we love our people but you know there's counter transferences stuff that trigger us too that you know make us not present all the time mm -hmm. um i that is something that i feel like is an ongoing skill like you, you really do have to sometimes force yourself to be present, you know, because it's so easy to um, think about other things and think about like, how can I help this person? Like my, you know, I think when you're talking to people or especially in like situations where you're working with clients, you are, you're listening, but you're also thinking, oh my gosh, what can I do to help them? Like what, you know, maybe if I turn to this resource and refer them here and like, you know, your brain is like going, it's like going 10 billion ways on trying to help this person. But at the same time, I'm only half listening to them. Like they could be giving me a whole laundry list of problems you know, or issues or things that they're dealing with, but I'm only focusing on like one or two, which is, I think is good. But at the same time, it's like, listen, be present and listen to kind of everything and then do that discussion after you know that makes sense that while while they are talking to you while they're sharing their pain their trauma what they've been through what they're going through to really listen to them and then at the end be like okay you know just like reflective listening and all that stuff but i feel like you just have to turn 
your brain off and put your listening ears on in a simple way, you know, because that's, um, I mean, that's something that I think we all deal with. And then it at the same time, you have to be very conscious of like, okay, nope, listen to what they're saying to you. And we'll, we'll, we'll discuss what we can do to help after you kind of get more details and get more of their story. So like just turning off my thinking, my helping brain, you know, that makes sense. And to just, just listen to them, just, just listen and, you know, just be very conscious of turning off that helping brain, you know, when you're talking to somebody. So, but yeah, no, it sometimes can be hard, you know, and also when you get, when you're feeling, when you're listening to other people's traumas, you can't help but feel like, oh my God, <laughs> like, wow, they, they, they're, they're, this is, this person is like going through a lot. And, you know, it's like, sometimes you're, you know, you think, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm dealing with this. So again, be conscious and just, you know, just turn off your brain and just listen. But it is, it is hard. It is very, it can be very hard to be present. But like I said, that is something that as an ongoing skill, I think that we all do. Like, it's not something like I, I don't, we, I don't think any of us have mastered it and we're not going to master it, but we can just keep on being conscious of like being present, like really telling yourself to be present. I think, yeah. Thank you for that. And that really reminds me of the saying, like, listen to understand, don't listen to respond. And so, you know, sometimes I, I, I like that you said that we're not going to master it because sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm not fully present at all times. And so that's just a reminder, you know, we're human and, you know, we're not perfect. Um, and then last, but certainly not least, Cache, I am so excited about your work and what you're doing. And I was just hoping you can share a little more about, um, ways you have shifted away from systems and you know like what systemic boundaries have you put in place for yourself um because you know the world around us is built on systems and they're definitely not going away anytime soon um but it's people like you that you know make me really excited that are going to change some of these systems that we so desperately need (laughs) Yeah, I well, thank you for that first, um, that vote of confidence. I, you know, and I, I, like I said, this is my, this is what I need right now. And I think that's, that doesn't mean that I'll never work inside of possibly a system again. Even as I say that, though, my body is having this response, so I don't know. But, um, yeah, I think for me, it's been it's been a matter of how I restructure my life in general. So, and this is kind of even, I thought about this after I responded to your question, Christian, about how I've built kind of that ability to just buck. And I think I just always have. And so I think about even, I'm going to take a little, a little route diversion, but my... So I think about it in terms of my identity, because I believe we we bring all of our identities into our work. And we also, um, you know, we everyone that we work with, you know, brings theirs as well. And so for me, I identify as Black, queer, non-binary, polyamorous, 
um, divergent, <laughs> however you want to, you know, understand that um, mental health uh, lived experience, um, survivor of many things. As you see, my name on here is Soul Survivor, right? So that's how I see myself. And um, what that means is that I have to kind of create systems around me that are new because there is no system that I am qualified to fit into. <laughs> and I think I got tired of trying, like I never tried to fit in per se, but I got tired of having to explain why I don't. Um, and so I have, like I said, decided not to work within the systems, meaning like I won't take a job inside of um, you know, an, edu an education system, a, a, a you know, a, a nonprofit, honestly, um, uh, working in, you know, criminal justice system, all the systems that were mental health system that I've worked with before, I just can't work within them. Now, the other thing, and this is important about funding, this is why I'm so passionate about cooperative development. Because I think one of the other failures of the social work profession is that we teamed up with the government. That has never been a good idea for the welfare of humanity to team up with the government. And I'm just putting it out there. When you receive money from the government, you can't then tell the government, this is what I'm going to do with your money. You just can't. I mean, I mean, you can, but then you have, right? And so... So part of what I think we need to get away from is government funding. I think we need to shift into um, private funding. I think we need to shift away from the nonprofit world in general um, or, or establishing nonprofits, though I do, I do find value in nonprofits as well. It's mostly how they have begun to run, but not all are run in the ways that I'm speaking of. Um, and so even in those things, um, something else that I, I will talk about on here that I don't talk about as publicly for many obvious reasons is that something else I've been able to be a part of is wealth redistribution, which is basically folks, you know, we are in 2023. There are a lot of people who feel guilty about where they inherited their wealth from. We need to be taking advantage of that, right? And these are things that we don't, we don't go after as social welfare folks because one, we don't always have the information that it's even out there. We don't have the access to it directly ourselves. We don't have the time to sit in on an info session about, you know, about the resources um, or, or we just don't know what to do. You know, we don't know what to do about it. And so, so I've even, like I said, I even shifted away from, from, from seeking funding with, with systems, from systemic resources. Um, and I think that is a big shift because when it's privately funded, you get to decide how you wanna run it. You get to decide how you wanna run your business, how you wanna provide your services, how, who you wanna provide them to and in which way, what type of cultural, you don't have to do just EBP, you know, evidence-based practice things, you know, um, because we all know that there's also barriers to that while we're talking about it, you know, 
to getting indigenous practices qualified and certified as evidence-based practices. And who decided that, you know, who got to be the gatekeeper of what an evidence-based practice was, right? So there's a lot of things that I think for me personally, I just, I, I had to cut the cord because I recognize that even, even within social welfare, the social welfare system, um, and I think one thing that shifted me uh, additionally is the, the BLM movement, right? Because um, we, we, there's been this thing since George Floyd of like, oh, maybe we should defund the police and just shift the money, the funds to social welfare. And I'm like, please don't, because all social welfare is is another version of policing. So you have to be very mindful of where you're shifting funds and how and to not replicate the same things over and over again and just call them something different, right? And so um, y'all talked a little bit about, and I think it's key, um, about not having locally, you know, local uh, folks doing social welfare. I don't understand why you need an MSW to do social welfare. You could learn on the job, which in fact, newsflash, you do. It's called a practicum. So there's just all these things, right, that we, it, we've made it difficult to do exactly what we know how to do. And I just, I just had to say, you know what, I'm going to go back and start <laughs> reading up, getting, you know, being in Hawaii for six years was huge for me, connecting with the many indigenous and Polynesian cultures, um, which are very similar to, um, yes, we do exist, <laughs> the radical social worker. Um, um, but yeah, and so I just think that that we, it's, it's out there, right? Um, but like, even right now, we're all on here. Folks now know they can reach out to Cache for this. They can reach out to Natalia. They can reach out to Marley. And this is the type, this is how we build. Um, and I think as the, as the current systems start to see that we are withdrawing our money, our services, our resources, our consumers away from their systems and into our systems, then they will have no option but to shift. But so long as we continue to just, you know, stay within them and, and perpetuate the same things over and over, it won't. So I think we're in a, a really good opportunity, a really good time right now where we can take advantage of some things. But you, we gotta, you gotta get the information out there, and and we and we have to stick together too. I mean, we have social workers, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop the mic on this, but we have social workers who voted for 45, and what that means is that. Though you cannot separate your ideologies, your identities from your work. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean for the work? Right. What does it mean who you are showing up as, who you decide you can work with, who you decide you can't work with, who you decide you give services to, who you decide you pass on? You know, it's, it's all of these things. And so um, holding holding the systems accountable um, so if I work with a system, I need everything in writing and you need to know I'm showing up just as this. I'm not showing up any different. And I think that's another thing as social workers, we, we're like chameleons often. Right. But I think we we got to stop doing that so often. I think we have to be like, this is what our communities need. And this is what we need from you to give our communities this. And we don't want to talk about anything else. <laughs> Um, and I know that that's going to take time, but I, I think I have hope that 
that it can shift if enough people believe that it's possible. So. Thank you so much for that. And you've created a lot of um, questions in my mind today in a good way, um, because I, I relate a lot to your story of, you know, really involving myself in my work and schooling. And, and that's where I really um, thrive and I love to do. And then, you know, like you shared, you went home and you started crying one day, like I've gone through those motions. Um, but my mind, I guess, has always been stuck in those systems. And, you know, I've been put in this box and this is how I have to be. This is what I have to do. And so you've, you've really expanded my thinking today and all three of you. And I'm so thankful. Um, Christian introduced me to you all and he has such a good network of people. And I look forward to hopefully all of you coming on individually in the future. Um, and thank you. I'll turn it back to you, Christian. Before you jump in, Christian, before you jump in, Christian, I really want to say really quick that I want to make sure no one thinks that I'm saying we don't need people in the systems because we do as well. So even even when you feel like that, sometimes I don't want you to think that that means you have to leave. We need people within and without. Right. And so I and I think we need people who probably like me will oscillate in and out. Um so I just I just want to put that out there because I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying everybody run because if everybody runs, then nobody's going to be here to help the people that are still receiving services from the system. Yeah, I just want to say thanks to everybody. But, you know, I, I want to say a big shout out. Thank you to Doreen. You, I just think you did a, a great job with your questions. Uh, and I feel like it's a privilege to have you here co-hosting the podcast with me. So thanks for your contribution. Um, and I want to echo uh, what she said as well, that I hope that each of you come on individually, because as each of you were speaking, you know, I had, I could have wrote down a, a hundred more questions to ask and we could keep this podcast going forever. And so it's great to have all three of you on here together, but I think we could really get in, get down deep, uh, you know, with some individual dialogue. Uh, I want to turn it over to questions from the audience. If you want to call in, go ahead and queue up. I see uh, Yuka's in there. Um, I want to, there's a couple in here already. So I'm going to ask the first one uh, real quick. This one's toward Cache. This is from Heather. Um, she's one of my students. She says, thanks for sharing. Can you talk about institution? Uh, you talk about institutions and systems. Can you talk about how or where do you start when you're talking about changing communities? Mm. Um, not quite sure that I understand the question fully, but what I will say is I don't believe in changing communities. I believe in helping communities become who they who they want to be. So I, I as I said, I'm born and raised uh, Philly. However, my mom moved us away um, in, when I was in high school. So I spent 20 years away from Philly. I'm now back here. I've been back here since 2020, but I spent 20 years away from Philly. So I am a perpetual outsider. <laughs> I approach every community that I go in as an outsider. I do not think that I know better than they do, which I also think is is a is a is a is an ego challenge with many social workers. Um, we won't even get into the, the survivor complex. I mean, savior complex that that social workers often come into the work with. Okay, that's a, that's another live. I mean, another podcast too. But um, and so I don't. It's like empowerment. I don't believe that we empower people. I believe we give folks the tools 
uh, or give them, help them understand the how to use the tools they already have within themselves to empower themselves because that's who does the empowering. And so communities, same thing. They empower themselves. All I am there sometimes to do is to say, what do you need? Here I am. This is what I, this is what I have to offer. Is it any, is any of this something that you may, may need or want? Um, and how would you like me to be a part of that? I don't believe that I have the answers. I know that I have access to resources that m all of the identities I named of myself have challenged having access to those resources. So part of my life's work, I believe, is that I am here to bear the brunt, right, of a lot of things so that I can gain access and pour, you know, the access is down the ladder, so to speak. Um, so when I work with different communities, which I do in different capacities, that's how I work with them. Um, you know, I believe that institutionalization is not just a thing of prison, that when you are in the child welfare system as a child, as a uh, parent, as a foster parent, whatever, that you become institutionalized by that system, which is the child welfare system. And you have and we are not a system all either of rehabilitation. If we were, our assessments and our you know client reports would be individualized and not templates. Okay, so I think we, we have to enter communities as if each community is an individual. Right. Um, and be responsive to that. And that's how that's how I approach. Um, so if if a community wants to deinstitutionalize themselves, great. If they want to figure out how to work with the institutions, that's fine, too. If they want to figure out, you know, whatever they feel uh, they need. And then within communities is also different sectors. Right. So you, you might have your, your church folk, your, your your young people, people who are in school, people who are retired people. And you got to ask, you know know how to work with all of them. You also got to get with people um, in your team and in your support system who know how to work, who know how to do things that you don't know how to do or who have resources, who have skills, whatever that you, um, that you can bounce off of each other. So that's what I would say for that. Hope that answered the question, Heather. Yeah, thanks for the question, Heather. Thanks for the answer, Cache. We have, uh, I'm going to see if we got Yuka here. Um, Yuka is all the way over on an island on the west side of Alaska, close to Russia. Yuka, are you there? Hello? I don't know if she's there. Yuka, if you're there, come on. Um, right now, I'll turn over to Deb's question. She says, I find that the people in management or higher up who aren't social workers but are concerned with billables don't understand our needs. I would love to have a mental health day. How do we bridge that divide? Uh, I'll leave that to any of you. I feel like it's talking to Matt, like HR. I feel like that is just a policy within an organization that they – you know, like, I think it has to come from the employees to talk to the management. Like, you know, sometimes you have to go, you have to work from within that you have to be like, hey, look, I'm overworked. 
I'm tired. I need a break. I've had like three sessions back to back. I have one more, you know, it's like, you know, telling your organization yourself that, look, I need a break. I need a break. They need a break. Everyone here needs a break because I can't do my job if I'm stressed and not just stressed, but like high stress, like I cannot do my job. Sometimes you have to just be honest with your management and not be like, I think a lot of times we're, we get scared of like, oh my gosh, if we speak up, we might get fired. We might get like that, you know, like, like labeled a troublemaker, you know, anything like that. But you know, you, sometimes you do have to advocate for yourself within your own organization and being able to say that, look, I need a break. I am tired. I am, and be honest about like, I am at this point, I'm not present for my clients. I'm not even present period right now. Like, you know, like just be honest that my brain is not working right now. I am of no use to anyone right now. So like going from within and talking to your HR, the management and everything, and just being honest of like, I need a break that because or else I'm going to break down. You know, I think that's definitely one of the things you just have to go from within your organization and advocate for yourself and also advocate for your other coworkers who might be also scared, you know, and just don't be afraid to speak up for yourself. Speak up. I think that's that you know, gives a change from within an organization. And if they value you, then that's great. If they don't, then I think that's a sign that this is not a good place for me that my mental health is is not good here so speaking up and in whatever happens from that you're going to make decisions for yourself but i think at, at the end of the day is advocate for yourself within your organization wherever you are just be like i need this time because i have no use to anyone thanks martha yeah I'm going to take this a step further real quick too, because, um, because I think, uh, uh, yes, yes. And, um, I also know that I also know how hard sometimes it is being the person that always has to take stuff to, you know, um, yeah, Deb just said it's hard to do. And so, so I was inspired recently. I went to a cooperative conference, but I, uh, someone who was there was uh, at the, the, he was a plenary speaker is Chris Smalls. Now if folks don't know who Chris Smalls is. He's the guy, the Amazon worker who is now the president who got fired for calling out Amazon, right? And got fired, he got fired and is now the president of Amazon's first labor union. This is, there's now a, a, a movement happening, bringing together folks involved in cooperatives with folks involved in labor unions. And something that this made me think about was maybe we need to unionize social welfare because we continue to say, oh, do this within your organization or do this within your state's NASW. And really the NASW is not going to your organizations and advocating for you. They're going to national, they're doing policy work, they're talking about mission work, they're coming up with making sure that, you know, in academia, you can get your degree to be able to work in a community, right? So the NASW is actually not really 
they're not for for the same exact purpose that a union would be to specifically you know work on workers rights social workers rights what you know what are policies that should be in place what are some bare minimum pay things that happen unionizing could shift um uh even talking when we talk about the lcsw requirements Right. And so and and the Amazon labor union, and I, I want people to look this up because it, it really is a possibility for social workers. But the Amazon labor union is a national labor union. So anyone who works in Amazon can be a part. And yes, they have chapters. Right. But it's a national labor union. And so something that that ins that inspired me to think about was how could unionizing work for social workers? Um, and also when I, yes, Deb, that's completely true. And also when I think about this movement in universities by students to get paid for practicum, that's where a union would come in place, right? Because uh, what we would like it to happen is NASW say, this is a requirement. If you have, you know, as a university, if you have a, a BSW or MSW program, you have to ensure that your practicum students are, but they're not going to do that. And so I think unionizing um, as, and really recognize ourselves as labor workers, again, this is when the disconnect happened between academia and what social welfare is really supposed to be about. We even call ourselves frontline as opposed to, you know, upper management, stuff like that. We've really separated ourselves. So anyway, I just wanted to say that, that I think unionizing may be something that might be part of the next generation of social workers. And I'm looking forward to that. And I will help them. <laughs> all right. I have a question from Alicia. She said she's having trouble putting it in the chat. She said, first of all, thank you. Thank you, all five of you. Great episode. I've been reflecting on the way we're often taught to normalize symptoms of the society as normal or just part of the job and then practice for ourselves or teach to people who we work with skills to cope with. What ways have you found helpful for yourself and clients to acknowledge that we don't have to put up with these unreasonable things without creating complete despair or hopelessness or breakdown? Or is the breakdown necessary for change? LOL. I'm going to type that in there too. Any thoughts? I know for me, one of the things that I do with my clients, and, and it's really difficult with the population that I work with, right? Therapy for working with people who don't have their basic needs, who don't have housing. Um, I mean, how far can we really get? Not not very far. So a lot of our sessions are really about our relationship and, and just that space, being able to hold space for somebody. Um, and sometimes we do do coping skills but it's like yeah like how how many coping skills can I offer for someone who is you know ex I don't know if you have sweeps in Alaska but experiencing sweeps on a weekly basis and having all of their belongings taken away um, but one of the things that I try to do is to advocate with the client so sometimes they'll tell me things that like the story just doesn't add up in regards to another service provider or someone else so I, I try to call with them to model or help them prepare of how we're going to make this phone call and stand up for ourselves um, because this is unacceptable. Uh, I remember there was a mental health 
agency that provides case management and the number on their website didn't work. It was like something like that. Like someone couldn't get a hold of their case manager and the number on the website was disconnected. And so it was like making the phone calls with whoever I knew to find somebody in front of the client to show like this treatment is unacceptable and we're allowed to, to advocate on our own behalf. And you know, that's, was a very small step in, in the in the bigger picture, but it's something that I can and do. Um, and then also when there's bills and things going in le- legislature and, and um, some larger movements where we try to look for clients. I personally um, am not as involved in that, but I know that the agency that I work for is. And so um, I try to connect Yeah, thanks, Natalia. Any other thoughts before we wrap it up? Um, first, I want to say, Alicia, thank you for that question and the LOL. I love that. Um, I do believe the breakdown is necessary for full change. For 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 uh, sorry for sustainable change. Um, and though I can sit with them in the breakdown, um, I also again I'm. I'm not, I have not been working with the clients in like one-on-one direct services now for about three years. So um, it's a little bit different for me, but when I'm, when I, in thinking about uh, when I was working in direct services, that was a little bit of it. Um, Also, I'm very much, again, like (laughs) when I'm with so when I'm with people so yes it's it's like very real conversations very I think I I used to call them come to Jesus moments you know of like this is what it is um and then I never I think for me the key is never leaving folks without resources what is the resource that is needed for change um to happen but i think um shifting what has been normalized in our society away from normalization is work that we're going to be doing as long as humans are here unfortunately um because it seems like everything becomes normal at a point right and so part of i think our work as social welfare folks is to is to ride the wave of that and help folks individually communally familially whatever figure out how they can ride that wave feel empowered to shift without and being okay in the breakdown along the way without um, feeling like they have to stay there. And that is really hard. And one reason why I'm not in direct services anymore right now. Um, but I, I wait for, I look forward to a time when I can say that to someone again and believe that it's possible um, and believe that I can do something about that with them. Um, and I'm, I just want to take a second to thank all of you for still being in that direct, that direct work um, because it is so necessary, so needed, and 
I know you all. I love you all. And I'm so grateful that because there are people I won't name them. We graduated with. I was like, I'm not referring anybody to you ever. And I worry about that. I worry about that when I'm in school and I feel like, right, um, Doreen, hopefully you don't have any any classmates that you feel that way about. Um, and um, and so I am very grateful for you all um, being a part of that community and people that I, I feel comfortable referring to. You know what I mean? Um, because it, it, it could be another way. So. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, we're way over time. It's been a great uh, it's been great listening to you all, dialoguing with you all. I feel like it's been a very transformative episode. Um, the only thing that really is not good for me about it being so long is now I got to listen to a three hour episode to try to pull some clips from it. Um, just kidding. But no, I really wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, you know, I want to start with, uh, you, Natalia. I just want to say, please pay my respects to your beautiful son, uh, to my brother, King Tui, uh, pay my respects. And I just want to say, uh, ultimate thank you for coming on the show for, and also for being generous with your time and sharing the episode with, with all of us, you know, when it was supposed to be yours individually, I, I, I respect you for, you know, being for flexible in that way. And uh, I just want to open it up to you, Natalia, do you have any last words? Okay. Uh, well, no, I just want to say thank you. I have a lot of words that I could say, but I'm trying to keep it as short as possible today. But thank you so much for inviting us. And um, thanks, Marley and Cache and Doreen for all of us, you know, the stars aligned for all of us to, to spend this morning for me and boy, my morning together. So thank you so much. And Doreen, um, I also wanted to say I know how stressful it is when the internet goes out. So I hope that that wasn't too stressful for you to be running around. Um, and, and you did a great job as well. So thank you, everyone. Thanks, Natalia. And Marley, you know, it's always a pleasure. You're always somebody that, you know, uh, you know, you have that personality and that spirit about you that, you know, running into you on, on Kapiolani Boulevard is, is, is a blessing and a pleasure. And, uh, you know, having you join us here, having seen you face to face for a long time, um, you know, it brings me back to our, you know, it's fun to think back about to memories, you know, from when we're going through grad school, because it's a very unique moment in our lives um, and the, the relationships that we make. So uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to know you, Marley. It's a pleasure to have gone to school with you and to, to maintain those connections. Much respect to pass on my respects to your Ohana. Um, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Do you have any last words? Oh, I know. I think it's really great to still have these connections in our friendship. And I really thank you, Christian, for doing this. And I told you I knew we are going to go over because we have, like, awesome people that can talk. I'm very passionate about what we do, and we just keep on moving forward for ourselves and people we work with in our communities. So I, I honestly don't think I could not do this without these wonderful people that are, you know, that I, I am, it's an honor to call friends and colleagues, everything, but mostly friends, like really great people that I definitely want to keep in my life 
forever, <laughs> you know, just have those connections and everything. And, you know, wherever we are in the world, we can still, you know, talk to each other like we saw each other not too long ago. Like we still have that ease and it's not awkward or anything. So that's what we all share, even though we haven't like been together like since school like honestly in the same place in school so I think that's always a wonderful thing and for Doreen I hope you can you know forge those connections with you know your fellow um, classmates because that's where you get your support from like you know talking with a lot of like honestly we've known each other for almost 10 years basically you know and so being able to have these connections you know is an awesome thing and Hopefully forge those connections and thank you. You guys you've been great. So thanks, Marley. And I just wanted to, to say that I heard there's a special day coming up in April 2024. And maybe we can all reconvene if the stars align um, for a little bit. All right, Cache. Um, I just want to, you know, pay my respects to her. And um, you know. Listening to you talk, you, you spoke about a lot of things that I've been thinking about, and the only person I've really had a chance to process through is my, my wife, my partner, Alicia. And so it was, really, um, it, was, it was really hopeful for me to hear somebody else talking about things in some of the ways that I've been thinking about them. And so, again, as with everybody, but I really hope that, you, uh, that we're able to connect again and, and, you know, unfold some of those many, many layers of, of what we just, you know, barely touched the tip of the iceberg on. Um, but you know, most thing, the most thing I want to tell you, Cache, is just thanks for being you and thanks for lending us your time and, and joining us today. I really appreciate you for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christian. I, I think I said thank you a few times this, during this, but I do want to say thank you. Um, everyone on here, <clears throat> like I said already, I love you guys. Um, I think that the the relationship that we built as a as a cohort cohort right because <laughs> um, uh, has been has been really incredible, and I'm I'm so grateful for it. And obviously, no matter where we are in the world, we're going to continue to um, to connect and. Um, uh, yeah, Doreen, I hope that that your experience <clears throat> continues to be one that, you know, you find yourself able to be expansive in and feel free always to reach out. I can't speak for everybody else, but feel free to reach out. Um, and uh, Marley, you know, I, I love your energy. I appreciate how you show up all the time. Natalia, I love how you have been a young old person the entire time I've known you. <laughs> Natalia, and, you know, I love Tui. I love your baby, Motase. Um, and I'm, I'm, um, you know, I want to, I'm, I'm honored to be here. I do want to give a special shout out to my people who have supported me. I have to do this because I wouldn't be here. I would not be on this podcast right now in 2023 if it weren't for my wife, my Chanel, my um, other partner, Trenda, my Polycule, my first son, Shaka, my, you know, my friends, y'all, um, my grandmother, um, and I, I just, and, and my ancestors. So as I spoke earlier about 
bringing all those people in with me. They are all in this podcast with me as well. Some in actually in the you know in the audience, um, and I just I really want to honor them and thank you so much, Christian. Like I said, for being you as well because you you don't have to be you. You could have been somebody else. And your commitment to your commute, the communities that you travel to, that you've come from, that you interact with, your commitment to your your family, your what you feel your responsibility is, um, I am so grateful for. So thank you for having us on. Yeah, thank you for the kind words. The feeling is is obviously mutual. And um, you know, lastly, I want to turn to Doreen. You know, Doreen's one of my students in the the cohort. For those of you that aren't familiar with the cohort, we it's students from across rural, rural Alaska, mostly uh, Alaska Native Indigenous, in, once a week at the end uh, in the center of Alaska in Fairbanks. And uh, so I'll see Doreen in about a week, I guess, in a, a week from Tuesday. But um, I just want to say special special thanks to you, Doreen. You know, I uh, I see so much in you. Um, you know, I didn't know you that well when you start, and you're also kind of quiet to begin with, at least from my experience. Um, but, you know, starting with like some of the where you stepped up and, and gave some presentations in class, um, your participation in here. Like I've been very impressed with with your uh, ability as a co-host, with your ability to produce thoughtful questions, to even like, you know, follow along and produce them as, as the podcast moving forward. I think very highly of you. And I hope that, you know, uh, that you can find all sorts of opportunities because, you know, um, I can really see you ascending to some great heights in, in different ways, if that makes sense. Um, so I really respect you, and I hope that you come on the podcast again as well. Um, so thank you, Doreen. Do you have any last words? Yes, thank you so much, Christian. And um, I just want to thank you. And then I see Laverne in the in the audience and Richenda, and it's for people like you that really helped me come out of my shell and you know, I am a really quiet person and pretty reserved and um, you guys have really helped me open up and, you know, explore that side of me that I know I have. It's just, you know, growing up in rural Alaska, small place, you know, you have a small voice in such a little town, um, but you know, there's, there's power into, in this cohort, in this field. Um, and I think, Natalia said it best in the beginning, you know, therapy and counseling can be feel really lonely and isolating. And so I just want to um, thank you, Christian. I look forward to this podcast every Saturday and it gives me it gives us people like us that do feel lonely that, you know, we feel alone in our profession to get together, talk about it talk about, you know, the changes, um, be inspired. And so it's a part of my self-care. And I just love that I was invited. I think the stars aligned. I can talk about this topic forever. And it's I'm really passionate about self-care. And, you know, burnout is so real. Um, and so I just want to also th say thank you so much to all of our guests today. And you have a really awesome network of people, Christian. And um, I gained so much from today from you all thank you yeah thank you and you know usually when the from my experience anyways when the stars align it's because they are supposed to so um you know and i don't mean i don't mean that lightly i mean that very seriously and uh so if you ever need anything during you know i'm sure 
I, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of everyone, but I'm, sh I'm pretty sure that everybody in this room would be happy to, you know, continue to build upon the connections that were uh, started today. Um, and before I close, I just felt compelled to, to share, not really a story, but just a quick reflection, because mostly I thought about it when Cachet mentioned Shaka, um, their, their dog. Well, I have a cat named Bunny, and some of you may be familiar because I made some videos, but he's a really, he's a, actually a street cat from the west side of Oahu over on Waianae. Um, and we, we've, we brought him here with us, but he's a really different type of cat. You know, he goes on walks through the forest with us, follows us around. Everybody's always like, what's going on? You know? Um, and he's outside all, you know, he owns this, this area that we're in this forest that we're in basically. Well, he came home the day before yesterday and I think his leg is broken and I don't know what happened. He was gone for about a day. So I don't know if he got too high up in a tree and I'm not sure it's broken, but I just feel bad for the, for him. Cause you know, He's like, keep trying, he keeps trying to go outside, but he can't even walk. Um, and he's sad, you know, he's over there like yelping that sick to go outside. So I just want to put some thoughts out for my strange and, uh, and uh, amazing cat bunny and hope that he gets well, just throw some good vibes out to him. Um, again, thank you everybody for coming on. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, from my family to yours, my Ohana to yours. Uh, thank you. Um, well, you can find episodes right here on the Colin app. Uh, we, we air every Saturday morning, 10 a.m., Alaska time, live. Uh, we'll be here next week. I'll have – it's going to be a much different episode. I have uh, Ms. Kim Swisher. She's a former professor of mine, and also she works for CPS here in Alaska. So excited about that. And uh, the Critical Social Worker is a collaborative effort between the University of Alaska Fairbanks, Department of Social Work, and a Conscious Party production in collaboration with the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work. You've been listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. Your story, my story, our story. Peace, everyone. <laughs>